0: audio conversation with David Weatherly, recorded Monday, July 23rd, 2012. Um, I met David just a few months ago at the Open Minds Conference, which takes place every year in February, just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, we, we just ended up sitting together, we started up a conversation, and right away I realized, wow, this guy has has got a, a, a pretty clear and lucid take on this whole phenomenon, not just uh, the UFO thing and not just uh, the paranormal thing. And as we talked, he explained that he was just about to publish a book. Uh, It was completed and and due on the shelves very soon. The title of the book is Black-Eyed Children. I apologize, I have not read that book yet. I've got a big stack of books on my list to read, and this is one of them. But uh, I did spend a lot of time... Uh, listening to him explain the book in first person, and uh, it sounds fascinating. We'll get into that uh, in this interview, a very strange and frightening phenomena. Uh, As the interview progresses, we kind of go all over the map. We talk a little bit about, uh, oh, just the power of intention and uh, what a tulpa might mean. And also, it takes a little while, and it and it was on my notes here, like right at the last little thing here that I had written out as far as my questions to ask. At the very bottom of the page, it says owls question mark, and next to that it says shamans question um, mark. Those two things seem to be kind of uh, interwoven. At a certain point, and I, you can hear me. I'm kind of beating around the bush. I'm not getting. I'm not. I'm not getting right to it, just because it's almost embarrassing to ask. The question I wanted to ask and eventually did ask is, David, are you a shaman? And without hesitation, he said, uh, "Yes, I am." Uh, that took that totally took me by surprise. Uh, uh, so we explore that a lot. And let me tell you, that, that's got really interesting. Uh, David had had a near death experience in his youth while suffering from pneumonia. And as soon as he said that, like this little bell went off in my head just internally, and I said, "This guy's a shaman." And then to top that off, uh, he had been doing what amounted to paranormal research since his teenage years. He's roughly the same age as me, and he's been researching this for 35 years. Uh, you do the math, that means he started out pretty young. Uh, he's he's 49 years old. And he also saw Bigfoot when he was about 20, which is pretty young. And uh, that, that seemed to set him in a direction that, that's continued to this day. Uh, he is one of the I don't know, the unsung researchers in this strange field. A real modest guy and uh, a good storyteller. Now, I do have to apologize. The audio quality of this podcast is poor. Um, I... I'm going to try to monkey with it later and see if I can bring out uh, the audio a little cleaner. For reasons I don't understand, whenever he talks about the black-eyed children, the the audio quality or the uh, Skype connection or the telephone connection just spirals the drain. Uh, I I have attempted to do what I can to improve the audio quality. What you're going to get is uh, David sounding very quiet and me uh, sounding uh, somewhat too loud. Uh, I apologize. This is the best I can do. Uh, the interview is great. The, the, uh, the content is, is excellent. The quality of the presentation is poor, and I apologize. That said, I don't want to waste any more time. This is a long interview. Uh, runs almost two hours and 45 minutes. Our conversation goes all over the map, and that's the way I like it. Please enjoy. Hey, David, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. No problem. Mike. It's a pleasure being on. Yeah. Now, now we met in person back in February, which is presently it's July. So that's a few months ago now, and um, y- you shared some of the stuff in person when we spoke together at a conference in uh, outside of Phoenix, and um, I was completely fascinated with your the the story of the Black Eyed Children. As
1: pretty fascinating topic. It, it's, uh, it's one of those things that really compels people if they've heard about it, and if they haven't, they're, they're totally intrigued within the first couple of moments of hearing about this phenomenon. So it's, it's yeah, it's a very bizarre topic.
0: Now, now one of the things that, that we talked about in person is how this phenomena seems to be intertwined with other phenomena, and I wanted to, um, uh, you know, talk about th- the, the the book which just came out as well as how that ties into other things you've researched and, and other phenomena but I guess just to start off could you give uh, perhaps just one of the black-eyed children's story from the books one that might uh, encompass um, you know ver- much of, of the of the phenomena you know the the uh, the um, you know the, the key points that seem to play out in this phenomena
1: it's sort of basic yeah I will tell you one and it's sort of the the one that's both a model for these encounters and at the same time is, in a lot of the ways, the one that got me started on the path to investigating this phenomenon. I met a gentleman whose name was Paul. Uh, he was a prison guard, martial artist, bodybuilder, and this guy, he's kind of like a a, a modern-day John Wayne type, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, completely skeptical about anything paranormal. And uh, at the same time, he was one of these people that couldn't leave paranormal topics alone. So, you know, I would, I would see him on a regular basis, and he'd always have to make some kind of a crack. You know, i oh, catching any flying saucers this week or, you know, whatever. And uh, I've learned over the years, I've been involved in paranormal for a long time, and I've learned over the years that, Nine times out of ten, people that act like that, it's because they have a story themselves that they can't reconcile in their consciousness. And that was indeed the case with this guy. So, you know, here's this huge man who catches me one day, having a meal, and he he joins me, and he finally opens up with his story. And it was a story about an an encounter with a pair of black-eyed kids. Now, up to that point, I had heard a few of these stories that had circulated on the Internet in the early days of the Internet. And this is the early 2000s when I met Paul. But, uh, you know, while they were interesting, they also had sort of this air that they could be urban legend. Uh, I hadn't met anyone, certainly, who had had an encounter. So, you know, I, I just kind of filed it away for reference in my my brain and, uh, you know, just thought, well, okay, if, you know, if anything similar ever comes up, well, here, lo and behold, this guy starts telling me his story. And his story really captures a lot of the essence of the encounters. And what happened to him was he lived in a rural area. Um, he came home from work one evening and, and walked in his house. He had a, a wife and son himself, but they were out of town, so he was home alone. And he went into his kitchen, and he's preparing a sandwich or something, and he hears a knock at the door. It's this long sort of monotonous rapping on the door, and just like anybody would react, he stood there for a few minutes thinking this through. You know, it's like, is somebody knocking on the door? You know, why didn't they use the doorbell? So it was kind of confusing right from the get-go. And, it, and this knock continues. Finally, he goes to the door and he opens it. And there are two young boys standing on his uh, porch, on his steps, excuse me. And uh, they sort of had their heads tilted down. They're wearing drab colored clothing and hoodies you know the hoodie uh sweatshirts that are real popular and when paul opened the door this one boy says hey we just thought we'd stop in for a while and paul's response you know was kind of he obviously was puzzled for a moment he's looking at these boys and he says uh, i think you guys have the wrong house and the response is well we'll just come in anyway." And right at that point Paul is he, he just has the first glint of feeling a, a little bit uneasy and he's running through the mental checklist because he lives in a rural area and because of his profession he knows everybody in the area. He's you know, he's uh very aware of uh his surroundings because of how he's conducted his life as a guard and He's, he's looking at all the details and thinking, these kids are too old to be friends of my child. Uh, they aren't anyone I've ever seen in the neighborhood. He tries to have a dialogue with them, but they won't, really, they won't really respond to his questions. They just sort of redirect, and this is typical in these encounters. These children, their speech is always very monotone. It's, uh, people describe it as, as being rather cold. And these boys proceed to uh, try to convince Paul to invite them in. And when he tries to, he he moves forward slightly, he decides he wants to get a better look at these kids. The one in the front looks up uh, directly at him, and that's when Paul realizes this boy has solid black eyes. Uh, Not just the people, the entire square, solid black. And at this point, his nervousness has reached... uh, Sort of a peek and he's he just he's he's frightened he slams the door uh he leans with his back against the door for a few moments, he goes across the the room into the living room, and he said that he was still nervous and kind of worked up and then he hears uh again you know this noise he turns and looks, and his door has a little side frame windows. And staring in one of the panes is this boy with black eyes. And that's kind of the turning point for Paul. His his fear has reached a point where he suddenly feels just very angry. He runs to his bedroom to grab his firearm. And he comes running back out. And He he's kind this story to me a lot of times. And he told me that the, the only thing he could think in those few moments was that he he was going to scare those kids like they had scared him. He rushed to his front door, he flung it open, and the boys are gone. There's no sign of them anywhere. He runs out into his yard, he searches the yard all around his house, the driveway, the street, goes up and down the street. There's no sign of these kids anywhere. And, you know, the after effect was that uh, Paul just, he... Had a very difficult time. He still does to this day. Uh, I, I still have communication with him, and he still has a difficult time coming to terms with having been essentially terrified by a pair of children. And you know, it, it sort of set him on a course of uh, trying to figure out what the phenomena was, what these kids were, why he was terrified. Um, you know, he, he did a lot of things, and his is covered in depth in the book, um, but, he, you know, he, he did a lot of things, like he went and took uh, various courses to train himself to respond and not be afraid, you know, beyond what his training already was, and it, it's just, it was a compelling story, and here's a man, you know, that had seen the worst of worst in this, in society, I mean, he'd seen people shanked in prison, he'd seen brawls, and, you know all of these things that would horrify most people, and he just sort of you know went through all of these things with a very controlled uh, nature and mindset. But then, you know, out of the blue, two kids on his on his uh, front steps terrified the hell out of him. So it was uh, it was kind of the beginning point of exploring this phenomenon more for me and trying to find. Uh, more answers and to hopefully help paul and, and in doing so, I explored the phenomenon more and found many other people who had, had encounters with these
0: beings and and so like there 's a few key points here there 's there's the fear that feeling of irrational fear there 's the disappearing of the kids as well as um, just a sort of irrationality to, to the whole conversation you know that seems to be to be an, an element to this or it seem to be multiple yeah, elements within this yeah
1: yeah there are multiple elements and there, there's a handful of basics that seem to be prevalent in, in almost every encounter obviously the black eyes are in every encounter uh, the solid black eyes this the skin of these children is usually reported as being either pale or pasty looking. Uh, occasionally we'll hear that it has a sort of uh, Mediterranean uh, or olive tinted skin, uh, but the, the pale pasty skin is much more frequent. The clothing the clothing ranges from uh, very drab, modern clothing to <clears throat> clothing that some people report as being uh, appearing Amish or handmade or old-fashioned. The Speech of these children is always very monotone. It's uh, it, it's it seems that they almost as if they've learned a handful of phrases that, that they repeat over and over and over again. And uh, you know they use these phrases to respond to to questions. They never really answer questions directly. They just sort of try to redirect. And most people report that there's they feel like there's some type of uh, Mind control or hypnosis being attempted. And of course, the, the sudden disappearance of the children is, is very frequent. Uh, um,
0: I mean, here's a question Does anyone the report.? Irrational fear. Oh, here's a question Does anyone ever report the children just like turning around on the porch and walking away? No. That's
1: fascinating. No, because, you know, what happens in these encounters is that. Uh, Guys, you know, like probably ninety nine percent of the time, the for lack of a better word, the victim becomes so terrified that they just need to get away from these children, however they can. And you know, they they slam the door, or they drive away. And they, these encounters they occur, uh, gosh, they occur at people's homes, at the places of business, at uh, you know hotel rooms, parking lots. You know, the kids will approach a car and, and ask for a ride or ask bizarre questions, and uh, you know, it's, it's like you said at the beginning when you and I first uh, chatted about this initially earlier this year. The most fascinating aspect of this phenomena for me is that it crosses the boundaries of so many types of paranormal phenomena. It, it You know, just a basic story, you can find elements that are similar to uh, demonic entities or, or classic undead uh, lore. You can find similarities with the men in black or alien hybrids or ghosts it 's just it 's completely fascinating
0: now now is, in your research, is there a beginning point to to when people actually started reporting you know the black eyes of these children? I mean, I suspect that there, this sounds like a, like, a, like a spooky campfire story that someone might tell you know, 300 years ago or something, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and you you sort of asked that in a very wise way because let me tell you, when I first started researching it, you know, one of the things I wanted to resolve was the idea that this was an urban legend because the stories really started to uh, surface in the late 90s. What what happened was the first story...
0: that Which is, is, I will also add, the late 90s is, is exactly when the Internet surfaced.
1: Exactly, which is where the, the modern versions of the story begin. Uh, a gentleman, a journalist out of Texas named Brian Bethel, posted a story. It's probably the most common one you'll find on the internet. Uh, you know, there's there's four or five that you'll find just repeated on site after site after site. And the big one is Brian Bethel's story, which showed up, uh, I think it was in 98, 98 99, somewhere around right there. And his his account was that he was in a parking lot writing a check and uh, these two kids approached his car he was sitting in his car they approached his car and they tapped on the window and they started asking him bizarre questions you know they wanted a, a ride back to their house because they needed money to see a movie uh, Bethel had the the focus to look at the marquee and realize that the movie they said they wanted to see was you know like two thirds finished or something? So it was, it was absurd even that they were asking that. And you know he during this encounter he grew nervous and he ends up uh, realizing these kids have solid black eyes and he drives away from them. His account was pretty short. It was pretty basic by today's standards. He posted it on a, an early uh, discussion board and it really caught people's attention. I mean, it just it it sparked something in, in people that uh, caused this whole flood of responses and, you know, other people saying that they had seen these black eyed beings. So that was one of the things that I, I had heard early on. I'd heard a couple of these internet stories and I thought, wow, you know, like I said earlier, I thought, wow, this is uh it's a weird phenomenon. It's interesting, but it could be could be an urban legend that we could attribute to the internet. Well, when I started researching the phenomena I decided to Go back and, and really dig and try to find stories that predated the Internet and television. Uh, because, you know, if you if you also remember, you know, the 90s, we had the X-Files. And there's a whole sequence of stories in the X-Files where this, uh, I think they called it the black oil alien.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And entered people's uh, bodies and it caused their eyes to feel completely black. So, you know, we've got this weird convergence in the 90s of some of these things starting to show up. And when I started digging more, I found out. So I've got a twofold answer to your question. One is that, you know, the late 90s, we saw this term surface, the black-eyed kids or the black-eyed children, uh, BDKs for short. But what I found was when I started digging for older stories, I did indeed find encounters. With these beings, it's just that the focus was not complete eyes. It was a component of the story, but the child or the being, whatever you want to call it, was identified by the cultural structure of the area and the time. So, for instance, uh, there's a fascinating encounter in the book from the 1950s, and it happened in a rural area, farming community and uh it, it was this man who was walking home you know down this dirt road and he comes to the fence line that leads up to his house leaning against the fence post is this young boy and uh the gentleman who's walking his his name was Harold and you know Harold's like the, the good-natured uh to, I think he was like 16 or 18 at the time He's good natured boy of the the community you know and he knows everybody and he He just walks up and starts talking to this kid, even though he's never seen him in his life. And in the course of the encounter, you know, Harold is is kind of puzzled because this boy is not really responding. He's just kind of leaning against the post. And he he looks up at Harold and says, I want to go up to your house. Now, you take me, you walk me up to your house. And uh, Harold, you know, these are country people. They're, you know, they're very... uh, very simple, very religious, and, you know, Harold kind of gets this chill, and the story is that he he simply thought about, oh, I'm, you know, how fast can I run away from this kid? And in what appears to be mind reading, this this boy quickly responds when Harold has that thought. The boy quickly says, now don't you run away from me. You're going to walk me up to your house. (laughs) And, uh, you know, by all accounts, Harold broke his track record that day getting up to his house. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the the family, their response was, of course, the father, you know, immediately marched off with a shotgun to try to find this kid. And the mother immediately decided that Harold meant the devil. Because, you know, that that was their cultural, that was their foundation. And uh, the black eyes were a big component of the story because this kid had solid black eyes. But, you know, the... The reality to them was that Harold had met the devil, and he needed, you know, he needed help. And there's one of the component of this story which is really bizarre, and it it shows up on rare occasions in these encounters. When Harold was running from this kid, he heard what he described as this something akin to the screech of a bobcat coming from this child behind him, and. You know that, of course, that just that spurred him to move all the quicker, I think. But uh, <laughs> the mother ends up taking him down to you know the clergy to be blessed and cleansed and everything else. And uh, the story has survived for years with this whole uh, concept that Harold met the devil, but the devil was in the guise of a young boy with solid black eyes.
0: Now this is fascinating because we added one more, uh, a couple more little elements there. One of them is the mind reading. And and mm-hmm. the other is that bobcats screech. Um, now the mind reading thing certainly shows up almost universally within the U- the UFO lore, as far as the occupants yeah. of these UFOs have um, telepathic communication skills. Um, now I would also add that those telepathic communication skills go both ways in the in the UFO lore, where people you know like they they would never need to see the lips moving of the entity they would just hear it in their own head and i don't know if that shows up in the phenomenon no, right. at all
1: you know it's uh not really the the dominant um the, the mind reading itself in the more modern story seems to be more subtle uh it seems to be, and you know, I, gosh, there's so many aspects of this. There's one important component that we haven't even talked about yet related to these things. They, I, I've never seen a case where they intrude into someone's residence or car or anything else. They always try to convince the person to invite them in. And
0: this sounds like uh, the they, classic, you know, vampire, classic vampire narrative. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, you know, there's a, uh, there's this whole thing that unfolds as they're attempting to uh, wrangle this invitation and that's that these people feel like these children are attempting some kind of mind manipulation um, you know, mental control, hypnosis it's really fascinating, I uh, spoke to one woman who had actually used hypnosis years prior to her encounter she used it to stop smoking and she told me that you know when she first went to a hypnotherapist, she had trouble uh, being hypnotized, and she had to work with this uh, with this therapist on, on a few occasions in order to reach this point where she could get into a relaxed state so that she could go into a hypnotic trance. And she told me that it was a very particular feeling that she specifically knew. Uh, how it felt because she you know she always remembered when she was able to cross that bridge and, and allow this hypnotic effect and she said that when these children started talking to her in this this monotone voice she felt that and she described it like a penguin sensation she felt that sensation starting to overcome her and she said that she she's completely convinced that these kids somehow were attempting to hypnotize her and you know, it's it's really interesting because these encounters the, the kids seem to really uh, they they really mess with people's perceptions on some level. You know, when they're they're uh, at the same time they're not seeming to be completely successful with whatever they're attempting.
0: Now, this is this is fascinating. Yeah. So, just for the listeners, uh, they're going to hear a different audio quality here. We switched from Skype to a telephone. This has happened before, and you know who knows. I mean, you you're, you've implied that this has happened before, and I remember the the conversation you had with Whitley Streber. He, um, you know, made uh, made it very clear that that audio stuff was going on that he'd never encountered before.
1: You know, it's it's bizarre, Mike. I've uh, I get interviewed a lot, and, and about you know various topics, and I can do I can do an interview about cryptids or uh, you know haunted sites or whatever. No problems, no issues, or whatever. I start talking about these Dagon kids, and you know, a good portion of the time we start having audio problems. So it's it's very bizarre, and there's a whole there's a whole weird thing with that that has unfolded since the book has come out.
0: Uh, oh, and what's the weird thing? Well, the
1: <laughs> the book came out in uh, March, not too long after you and I met, and. What happened was, you know, after the book had been out for a couple of months, I received this email one day, and it uh, was from a woman who was reading the book, and she she said, "Look, she said, I I, I don't know what to make of this. I just needed to write you and ask about it because it, it it's really bothered me. I just want to know if anyone else is having this experience. Here's what happened: I started reading the book, and <clears throat> the first night I started reading this, the smoke alarm went off, and me you on know, my house. And she said, I got up and pulled the battery out and, and disconnected it or whatever. She said, and and I didn't think anything of it, but the the next night, the timer on her stove went off. And she says, I, I never used that timer. I didn't even know what the sound was when I first started hearing it. And uh, so she got up and she turned it off. And the third time is what really freaked her out. The garage door opened itself. And... <laughs> She sent me this email. She said, look, she said, I'm really interested in this topic, but I don't want to meet any of these kids. and I just want to know if anything else like this is happening. So, you know, I thought, well, this is kind of weird, you know, three incidents like that, and didn't really have anything else to correlate it to. But I had a couple of other things uh, from different people completely unassociated with her that came to me. And they said, you know, um, I was reading this book, and I left it by my computer, and my computer started acting weird. And yeah, I started hearing this, like, my God, I've got to put a disclaimer in there because I'm not paying for anybody's computer. <laughs> so, you know, but it got really weird when this friend of mine, I had sent a copy of the book to him. Yeah, he was in Kentucky. He, um, after he received the book, one day I got a phone call from him. Well, I answered the call, and it was nothing but background noise. I thought, okay, you know, pocket dialed or something. Well, this started occurring on a regular basis for, you know, a week. And I would get these messages on my phone that were 15 minutes long and just background noise or, you know, his kid in the background. Finally, I thought, oh, okay, I know what's happening. His, His kid's getting his phone and pushing buttons. So I let him know, and he's like, oh, I apologize. I'm really sorry about that. He gets in touch with me a few days later freaking out because he's like man i was sitting on my bed reading the phone was laying on the bed beside me no one was touching it it lit up and dialed your number and (laughs) he took the phone the next day to his cell phone provider and said why is it doing this it's only one person's number it keeps dialing it over and over again they they examine the phone. They did all this. They said we can't explain it. So, you know, he and I had, had been joking all, all along that it's these kids, you know, like kids kids, And uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. The kicker to this was that he went uh, on a trip and wanted to visit a couple of sites he'd always wanted to go to. He leaves for the weekend and goes on this trip. His phone self-dials me again. Uh, after not having done it for about a week. But it self-dialed me when he was in Point Pleasant, West Virginia.
0: Aha! Uh-huh. Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the site of uh, Richard, or um, John Keel's Mothman prophecies. The Mothman. Yeah, the Silver Bridge. Now, so, oh, this gets so strange. So, are uh, it's, so is the, uh, I mean, I, I almost have to, like, drop the role of pragmatic researcher when trying to wrap my mind around this and then sort of almost step into the role of like you know a cult poet or sort of mystic or something like that because you've you've left the realm of of what would be logical like a logical phenomena and sort of entered into the ro- entered into the realm of of like a, a like a something from beyond the veil uh you know is you know is is something Intertwined in the actual text of this book, that is a occult magic incantation of some sort. I'm just kind of—I I, I don't have an answer to these things, but this is—that was—that's one way to look at it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's—you know—there's a number of directions it can go. Uh, you know, my question <clears throat> when I first uh, started hearing this, because obviously it, it hasn't happened to everyone who's read the book, not by far. You know, it's a very small percentage. However, it also begs the question, or you know, the possibility, are the people who are experiencing these weird electronic things people who have encountered the black-eyed children and have forgotten them?
0: Forgotten the same way that a UFO abductee may have had their memory erased.
1: Right, right, because I, I know you heard the discussion I had with Whitley about this, so one of the interesting things that he and I were talking about is, you know, how many people encounter these things and perhaps the hypnosis or mind control does work. You know, how many people are having these encounters and don't remember what's occurred? Or or even more disturbing, how many people have disappeared that have some strange connection to these children? Because, you know, an incredible number of people disappear every year and there's, there's never any evidence as to what happened to them
0: yeah that number is frightening and i've i've heard people talk about that you know in the in the lore of the um you, you know just and no one seems to have a good answer to it there's no pragmatic thing is there you know it seems like there's is there some uh you know army of of kidnappers just you know living within our society somehow and just right. sneaking folks off yeah scary 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 stuff
1: it's, it's very frightening. It, it's very frightening. And there, obviously there are aspects about this phenomenon that are extremely frightening. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, people say to me all the time, you uh, know, I always get asked if I've encountered black-eyed children. And, you know, the answer is no, I haven't. And what inevitably follows is, is well, do you want to? My answer is no. I don't. <laughs> uh, despite having done the research and written the book, you know, there are simply too many indications to me that these things. Because I, I really, they're not children, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they're they're uh, some kind of beings with a very sinister agenda.
0: I mean, just you know, would you want to go to? I mean, demonic or evil, or I mean, can you? Would you, that's what you're implying?
1: You know, uh, the two the two most popular theories about these kids. I cover them in depth in the book, along with a lot of other potentials. Um, and, and I'll get to your question, but let me say, you know, the book I I made a real effort to. I don't push any agenda in the book. I lay out all the the uh, accounts that I was able to share that people allowed me to share. I lay out all the uh, connections with various types of phenomena through the ages. And I sort of put it all out there for people to judge themselves, what they feel these children are. And the two most popular theories are that they're alien hybrids, alien human human hybrid children. And the second most popular theory is that they are demons. Um, Now, I don't personally prescribe to either one of those theories Specifically, But I, I do think that these creatures are um, evil in a sense. I, I just don't think that they fall into the, the classic you know, Catholic, demonic um, structure. Now, what I feel they are on a personal level is that they are some type of interdimensional being that's coming into our world for you know, a, a purpose that we obviously don't completely understand.
0: And um, could that purpose be just simply to drink in the emotions of that of that fear? Because it seems like the fear is universal and irrational.
1: And that's very possible, and that's, that's something that I, I put forth in the book, is that, you know, the whole point to these encounters on one level seems to be Producing a high level of fear in the person they're encountering and and you know it's almost as though once they've achieved that they're satisfied or they've accomplished what they wanted and they, and they disappear
0: yes, and this is that high level of fear is something that gets associated with the um, the UFO visitor experience where people you know if they are not somehow under the mind control of these entities experience fear so profound that, that it almost defies description. Um, right. And, and that sounds like what you're describing, you know, an irrational fear. You know, the fear... Yeah, I, mean, that, I mean, we
1: can't, you know, we can't discount the bizarre connections between these black-eyed kids and, for instance, the, the alien hybrids. And, you know, I mean, I, I've met people who, and interviewed people who have been abducted on multiple occasions and are convinced that they were used in some kind of breeding program. And, you know, there's, there's a woman's story in the book who she's adamant that she knows that she was used as part of the alien breeding program. She encountered a, a black-eyed child, uh, and she's convinced that this black-eyed child was indeed her son.
0: Now, was there any telepathic communication going on this? Well, there
1: was. And, and you know, and, and I'll tell you the, the gist of the story is that uh, um, she came home and heard someone knocking at her uh, patio door. She had, uh, you know, like French doors or something on the back of her house, and she heard someone knocking on them. And, you know, thought, well, you know, my husband locked himself out or something. And she, she goes to this door and... Standing on the other side of the glass is this boy that she described as about 10 years old with completely black eyes. And she felt like she was communicating with him on some level and, you know, that she immediately knew this was her child. Now, interesting enough, she did not experience the fear reaction that most people do in these encounters. She saw this boy and just knew, you know, it's my son. He's come back to let me know he's out there. She said that standing several feet behind her was a second child who she did not feel like was any connection to her. It, it was just a companion to this boy for some reason. And as she, uh, you know, was, was having this connection with this boy, her husband walked in the front door behind her And, you know, said very loud, hi, honey, or something like that. It caused natural reaction. Her head snapped around and looked at him. She immediately looked back, and these children were gone. Uh, So, you know, we see that same element of these children vanishing. You know, the husband went outside. They live in a, uh, you know, one of those uh, developments, a community, and have a very small backyard. It's fenced. There really isn't a way to get into their backyard at the time of the encounter because, The only entrance is at the side of the house, and the husband had blocked it with lawn equipment or something like that. So it it was very strange, you know, that uh, these kids really couldn't have leapt over the fence that suddenly and and gotten away, but they had completely vanished.
0: Now, this is interesting that that story is the one story without any fear associated with it, because I have... I, I, too, have spoken with a great number of uh, people who claim the abduction phenomena and claim to be uh, immersed in some sort of uh, hybridization of children. And, um, you know, they will very often speak in the most glowing, loving terms of their children and how much they miss them and how much they they feel that the loss, the separation, um, and, uh you know, and I actually have talked to some that have had glimpses of their children in public places, uh, or what they you know say is glimpses of their children in public places, and then they, they immediately feel that same sense of bonding and of love. So that's that's fascinating.
1: Yeah. And, I, and I've talked to I've talked to a lot of people who've had the same experience that you're you're talking about and say that you know they they've glimpsed their children. Some people believe they've seen their children, you know, during an abduction when they were on board a ship. And it's, uh, we don't find the fear element in relation to the kids in those encounters. But there is that strong psychic connection, uh, with the children. And,
0: and, and I will also add an immediate knowing, which, which is something that I've heard reported multiple times.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's just, um, yeah, it was instantaneous, you know, when this woman saw this child. And it adds a whole other side to this phenomenon. And the truth is, there's so many aspects to this phenomena that we very well could be looking at something that has multiple
0: explanations, as well as you know. I think how to say this. I mean, anything you just said—it's coming from another reality. It's coming from another dimension. It's somehow overlapping into our dimension. You know, as soon as you go down that road of speculation, you're. In my opinion, you're dealing with something that, that simply doesn't play by our rules, and oh, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and I think that oh, how to say this, there's something um, uh, you know, sort of a mythic quality emerges any time you you pierce that veil. And I think that's just the 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 nature of our reality is that once something passes through that veil, it is automatically you know uh, it automatically takes on mythic elements and I guess this sort of late night visitor is something a mythic element may not be the right term but but it has that vibe of the, of the spooky campfire story and I suspect people all over the planet have been telling spooky campfire stories you know now we read them online and you know there was a day when all we could really do was you know tell them to each other but they have their own uh, tone do you know what I mean there's like there's some like all of them are short it seems like all these interactions are short you know, it doesn't seem like anyone Oh,
1: I, I completely agree with you. I think you know mythic element is, is a good term when we're looking at this phenomenon because man, these, these things become uh, well, they they're stepping into our reality, you know, for lack of a better term, and they at the same time they don't have to adhere to our rules. So it, it does take on a mythic quality, you know, it becomes something beyond what we're used to dealing with. And there's there's just so many things about this phenomenon. You know, something I discuss with people is, a lot of times, those who haven't encountered these kids or they just start hearing the stories, you know, they're first saying, okay, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. How, you know, why is someone terrified of a kid? Well, you have to understand that whatever the physical appearance, however bizarre it is, that's not what's causing this irrational fear. There's something else going on in these encounters that is causing this physical reaction and emotional reaction within people that is producing this level of fear that, that they've never experienced before. And it's not something that people can really explain because they don't understand how it's happening. And when you add in the, the psychological aspect is something that I've really looked at, because when you insert... Children into the paranormal. Things change. You know, has adults were sort of pre-programmed to protect and help children. If you insert a child into a situation where it's asking for some kind of help, but at the same time it's producing fear within you, that's that's a that's a real psychological conflict and it, it it does something to the person's mental process that
0: they can't really explain or reconcile yes exactly yeah and and um hey, I want to share a story, and I may have shared this with you when we were in uh Um, Arizona, at the conference, at the Open Minds conference in February. Um, But I just want to share it again here in case, you know, folks listening to this haven't heard it yet. Um, So I had an experience, this would have been May of 2010. I was in uh, the Four Corners area um, near Cortez, Colorado, and I was traveling with a friend, and her name is Natasha, and she uh, has had her own set of very profound, uh, life experiences that one might imply, uh, could be the, the alien abduction phenomena. Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of dancing around these, you know, saying stuff outright because I simply don't know. It just feels dishonest to, to, to not, you know, sort of frame these things that way. And I, and I, and I feel like I could fit into that same category. Uh, so we're camping in a tent. We had an odd day where, where, uh, the uh, car we were driving was having brake troubles so we took it to a, a shop uh, that they, they was in the back the guy comes from out of the back of the shop uh, you know with a literally with a rag in his hands and kind of wiping the oil off his hands and says uh, I can't let you drive away because you'll die uh, this car the brakes are just about to fall out and um, you know legally I'm required to keep the car here so uh, small little town uh, we uh, get a a cheap rental car. It was super easy, super cheap. It was right down the block. Um, and then, uh, we were sort of forced to stay in this little town for f- five days or near there, let's say. And, uh, just because it took that long to get the part there, uh, that night we just camped, uh, on, in a forest service road, uh, down, you know, what, would amounted to just a beautiful dirt road that ran through some, uh, federal government property on the outskirts of this town. Um, the uh at at a certain point we fell asleep and then both of us well excuse me then natasha screamed and i woke up feeling a sense of terror that i have never felt before it was it was beyond someone just you know, whatever. Someone screams, you know, they have a bad dream, you wake up, your heart's pounding, you kinda go, Whew, you know, what's up? That scared me. This this was something altogether different. This was something decidedly different. Uh it was a type of fear that uh I mean, if a grizzly bear had ripped through the tent and put its jaws around my neck, uh I wouldn't have felt the same fear that I was feeling right then. It was it was off the charts, irrational, it felt like it felt like my very soul was in jeopardy of just being crushed or or evaporated under this fear Uh, now this went on for a little while I remember I acted very nervous one of the things I did do is I just sort of climbed on top of Natasha the same way I would you know like if someone had thrown a hand grenade in the tent or something like that uh, I was just that was my immediate reaction was just like you know uh, and uh, this went on for a few minutes and the next thing that happened is, poof, we both went to sleep. You know, right from from soul-shattering terror to asleep, both of us. Uh, a few other things happened, but later that night I did have a sensation that I was floating up out of the tent. And as I was floating up, it was kind of this... I entered like I just seemed to have floated. I passed through the surface of the tent without any effect at all. Uh, and I remember suddenly I was in a white realm and I said to myself over and over again, I have to remember this. I have to remember this. I have to remember this. And then I remember very clearly my words were, am I on a table? Am I on a table? Am I on a table? I don't have any memory of being on a table, but that's what was, that's what was sort of ringing in my head. Uh, it felt like Natasha touched my arm and said, you know, Mike, you're floating. And the next thing, like I was back in the tent to sleep. You know, like, I don't actually remember being back in the tent, but there was kind of this, like, you know, literally like this sucking noise as I, you know, kind of... It, it like, one realm ended, and I was back what felt like a more normal realm. In the morning, both of us were like, what just happened? What happened last night? Uh, We had a conversation. A few little odd things came up. um, But uh, uh, that sensation, that fear, that irrational fear was, was something... That is the only time I've ever experienced it. And it was, uh, there's almost no words to describe. You know, I'd almost have to, you know, the the poet would have to step in and try to make sense of, you know, try to articulate it because I, I, I'm at a loss, you know, whatever I've said so far isn't doing it justice. And then, um, I'll also add that later that day I took my shirt off and I had a, I had a large scratch that went from my left shoulder to my belly button pretty much. And this, you know, initially it looked like a scratch, like a, like what you would see from a cat's claw or a rose thorn, you know, just a thin little scratch. But when you really looked close at it, it wasn't a scratch at all. It was tiny. I mean, like just as small as they could be little teeny blisters, like little teeny blisters, like a half a millimeter wide that, uh, that were all in a row. Uh, so I don't have a good answer to what happened though that, my, my sense is that, you know, one way I can play it is that something was standing outside the tent, and that something was capable, just by its mere presence, of projecting some kind of resonance, some kind of, uh, you know, f- signal that produced that same fear. Natasha was 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 articulating the fear the same way I was. Or... You know, it, maybe it wasn't projecting it out of, you know, wasn't doing it on purpose. Maybe it had a, no other choice, like, like it was simply from another reality that felt so alien and alien in the sort of Webster's Dictionary definition of it, you know, something unknown, uh, that, it, that that was our, that was our, our, our sensation, um, so, so anyway I, what I, I, that fellow Paul you started the story with and he talked about that irrational fear and uh, you know I can just chime in and I've felt it only once and uh, you know and it, and it was very profound
1: yeah and it, and it sounds like it came on you extremely suddenly you know most of these encounters with these black-eyed children it seems to it seems to sort of Grow. And it's a very brief period of time, but you know the people inevitably say that they go from being uneasy to to very nervous, to frightened, to just completely terrified, depending on the length of the encounter. And uh, there, there's a really fascinating story. I don't know if you saw this one or not. Uh, it's it's on my blog because it came to me. The account came to me after the book was already out, but. It's pretty amazing for a couple of reasons. One, it's—I think the first encounter I've heard where there was someone's pet was present. And
0: oh, oh, I did this read this encounter. online. I did read this online. Yeah, please tell it. This is this is very interesting.
1: Yeah, this this encounter happened in Texas. It was a gentleman who he came home. He ran up to the grocery store and he came home, and has he he walked up to his front door and. Now, in this situation, it almost appears as if this child uh, suddenly appeared because he said that he doesn't really have anything in his yard. There are any trees or anything. Uh, his yard's pretty open. He has a small steps that lead up to his house. He, he walked up. He had his hand on the door and had, had turned the door, and just as he did, he realized that there was this young boy standing on the ground beside the steps. And he turned and looked at this boy, <laughs> and this this kind of gives me the creeps. This boy looks at him and says, "Is it food time?" No. Now, come on, we all know no one speaks like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this guy was was completely. He just he didn't know what to think. You know, he was this weird kid making this weird statement you know is it food time <laughs> and you know he's he's all these things are running through his mind just like anyone else you know where this kid come from what's he talking about and uh now this gentleman had opened the door he's holding his, his bags and the kid you know he says he basically repeats it you know he says something uh, like i think it's food time you should invite me in Now, uh, this gentleman has a three-year-old pit bull that he raised from the time it was a pup and was an incredible guard dog. He has wooden floors in his house. With the door open, he hears the pit bull in one of the back rooms barking, getting closer because it's running through the house. He has a Essentially, when he opens his door, there's sort of a hallway that runs down to the living room. And he sees the pit bull come around the corner, making a charge for the door. When the pit was almost at the front door on a wooden floor, this dog tries to put the brakes on. And, you know, we, I'm sure we've all seen animals do that before. This, this dog tries to stop from a dead run pretty much fell over itself out onto the steps, turned around as quick as it possibly could, whining with its tail and head down, running as fast as it could back into the house. This gentleman has seen this pit bull face down rattlesnakes. He's never seen this dog back away from anything. But something... Caused this dog to be terrified when it got within a certain range of this kid, and the dog ended up hiding under the bed. He, you know, he had uh, he had trouble getting the dog out from under the bed, even to eat, and and just couldn't understand the behavior of his animal. But it's it's fascinating to me because you know animals are more sensitive. And something that that dog sensed when it was charging for that kid just just terrified it to no end, and you know basically caused caused a complete change in its demeanor and its behavior.
0: Yeah, and what so what happened with the the so the event? You know, the boy was standing next to the porch, and now the the door is open. What's the rest of the story?
1: Yeah, the well, the you know, the gentleman uh, after the dog runs away, you know, he's, he sort of ducks in the door and slams it, and goes in his house and he's you know he's feeling just now he didn't feel terrified but he he felt he felt very nervous when the kid was first talking to him when when he saw the reaction of his dog then he was really kind of freaked out He he didn't admit that he was terrified but he said that he was pretty pretty shaken up and he ducked into the house as quick as he could um you know, he put his things down. And he went into another room and tried to peek out the window and said that the kid had just vanished. Uh, there was no sign of him anywhere, like his, you know, typical in these behavior and these uh, encounters. But um, you know, the 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 effect on that dog was just stunning.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now now, I'm going to share another story of my own personal stuff. And this is, you know, I, I, I don't know how much I've told you, but part of the reason I do this podcast series and part of the reason I do this, well, a big part of it, is I, I consider it therapy for myself, trying to make sense of my of some of my own experiences. Um, and uh, I have had one experience where... My cat acted strangely. Um, I was sitting on the couch, uh, feet up on the coffee table, watching a movie. It was The Hustler, which is a Paul Newman movie that has... Um, oh, it's Jackie Gleason, isn't it? And Yeah. So uh, it, it's, there's a small UFO connection there, whatever that might mean. Now, earlier in the day, I had done a psychic reading with a woman named Anya Briggs, and... Uh, she is, uh, for my firsthand experience, a very powerful psychic. And quite honestly, the reading wasn't anything paranormal. A lot of it was just sort of pragmatic stuff about, you know, uh, you know, health and and uh, you know, just personal issues and stuff like that. Not really paranormal. But but it's interesting that it happened on the very same day. So this is nighttime. I look at my cat who's sitting next to me, and she is suddenly all poofed up. You know how, like a cat, the tail will get super wide and the hair on the back of the spine will get really wide. Uh, excuse me, um, get really stand up. I try to pet the cat. Uh, uh, you, you know, I can feel the the muscles on the back were super tense. Like it wasn't. It didn't feel like normally petting the cat. It felt like I was petting a very very tense cat. Uh, hold just a second. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so it felt like I, you know, it felt like the cat was very tense. Now, I um the cat's eyes were amazingly dilated. Like this isn't there's nothing going on, there's nothing going on outside, there's no dogs barking outside, anything like that. And I I get in front of the cat, right? And I and I and I get my face right in front of her, and I realize that she's staring at a spot in the house. And I um you know, Whenever I get in front of her, she'll like move so she can still see that spot in the house. And it's, you know, basically a spot on the carpet just a few feet in front of the coffee table. Uh, I did something that, um, you know, basically I stood up, I stood next, you know, stood in front of the blank spot in the, in the, you know, the the ether there. And I, and I basically said like, listen, this isn't working. I can't see you. Um, if you want to communicate with me, communicate with my, you know, come and communicate during a dream tonight. Uh, I'll add that nothing happened that night. Um, and then after I said that the, uh, like the cat all of a sudden calmed down, like, whoosh, you know, it kind of sat there and then it hopped off the couch and it went up as cautiously and slowly as a cat could. And, and kind of sniffed at and walked in circles around this spot in the carpet. Uh, and there's nothing really more to that story, but uh, you know, so there was a reaction of a cat, of an animal that I have, ne- you know, this, she's been my cat for, what's it, like seven years now, and I've never seen, that's the only time she's ever had that reaction. Right. And and uh, mm-hmm. And I don't have any, I mean, I felt maybe there was a presence in the room, and I say that more because The cat was implying there was a presence in the room. So, I, you know, basically maybe I took the cat's lead. So, Um, but yeah, so so I take that kind of animal uh, reaction very, very seriously.
1: Well, and we know, you know, scientifically we know that they're more sensitive and more aware of certain things than we are. They certainly seem to a different spectrum than we
0: do. Sure, the barking before uh, uh, earthquakes and things like that, yeah.
1: I was just thinking about the same thing. Yeah, you know, like all the, like all the animals that turned tail and ran prior to the uh, tsunami in Indonesia. Yeah, you know, we can always pick cues from animals, and uh, I, like I said, that was one thing that I found so fascinating by, this encounter with this guy's pit bull. It's like, my gosh, you know, this this shows that this uh, black-eyed child is projecting some kind of. Uh, an aura or an energy that goes out to, to some degree and, you know, as soon as this animal came in range of that, he was tremendously affected.
0: Yes. Hey, um, you are also working on uh, a book on tulpas? Is That's my next project. Yeah, that'll be out. It uh, should be out this fall. And like you... Early, and like you... Summer, early fall. Great. And you, in, uh... And first, if you could define tulpa...
1: Kalpa is actually a Tibetan term that essentially uh, is defined as a being that is created from pure thought but has taken physical form and you know we see this same essential concept around the world defined in different terms in the west we would call it a thought form, although a thought form does not necessarily take full physical form. So, essentially, it's it's something that is created from mental energy.
0: And you, um, I remember you spoke about uh, the author of the sort of pulp uh, novels, The Shadow, and how um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you could tell that story. I
1: would love that story. Yeah. uh, This is one of my all-time favorite, um, you know, little tidbits. And, and I sort of, I was led to write this Tulpa book for a couple of reasons. One is I explored Tulpas a little bit in the Black-Eyed Children book because it's uh, possible that that's another explanation for what the Black-Eyed Children are because Tulpas feed off of emotional energy. But, you know, years ago, the other side of my life is I pursued shamanic, Traditions from around the world and had an opportunity to work with uh, very closely with Tibetan uh, teachers for a while. And the old Tibetan tradition talks about this whole concept of these beings that become physical through a specific process. And, you know, in exploring that, it, it comes around in a weird way because John Keel, at one point in his career, investigated the house uh, of Walter Gibson. Now, Walter Gibson owned a house in uh, Greenwich Village, and he was better known by his pen name, Maxwell Grant, uh, known as the creator of The Shadow. He was a famous pulp character. He was also a famous radio uh, drama, ran for years, The Shadow. And... You know, he's very much an icon. Almost anyone, even if they're not interested in in pulps or heroes and things, they they pretty much know who the shadow is. He's a very iconic figure. And Gibson, during his career, you know, as as a writer, impresses the heck out of me because the guy was incredibly prolific. I mean, he wrote at at his peak the equivalent of two novels per month. And if for anyone who's a writer that that's you
0: know except for
1: maybe Nick Redfern, that's that's pretty mind boggling.
0: I know, I know, I have, I have a hard sometimes time. Of material. Sometimes I have a hard time writing two blog posts a month, so yeah. So I know what that yeah. feels like. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you know, uh Gibson he sat in his home creating this uh these novels, you know, two novels a month and and they were about the shadows and years later after gibson had passed away the people who purchased this house contacted john keel because they believed that their house was haunted when keel came and investigate to investigate and got more details out of these people they started to describe the apparition that they were seeing and they described it as a tall being with a slouched hat and a large coat or cloak and a scarf that covered the lower half of its face. Now that's the shadow. <laughs> you know, look at a That yeah,
0: that is the you shadow know, that's and that's cool. also the reports of the shadow figures that, that um uh, Jason Offitt as well as Rosemary Ellen Guiley have, have looked into
1: sure, sure. So you know we have this situation where it appears that the creator of the shadow's house is being haunted by the shadow and that's it, it, just mind-boggling on a number of levels. I, I mean Keel speculated a little bit that you know this may be you know, perhaps what we're witnessing was uh, early stages of a pulpa. Um, you know it, it's clear that Gibson poured an incredible amount of creative energy into his character. And, you know, it was uh, a character that was in the minds of, uh, and still is in the minds of millions of people, you know, has, has this icon. And that essentially sort of comes full circle back to the principles of creating a thought form, you know, it's all about, or TOPA, or it's all about pulling in energy and visualizing the specific image. Well, if, if you multiply. The amount of Gibson's creative energy that was poured into this character—I um, I don't know how many hours the you know the man sat and write and, and wrote per day. I'm sure it was pretty impressive because of the amount of material that he was putting out. But um, you know, we're we're still talking about a tremendous amount of, of charge, for lack of a better word, going into this uh, character's creation. And what's you know what's really fascinating about—if you look at the shadows. Um, and, and the whole history of the character, there's sort of multiple origins for the shadow and how he became um, how he, he gained the powers that he came, but one of the origins says that he went to Tibet and found this secret city and learned all of these various techniques to you know, to become invisible or to cloud men's minds or and all depends on which version you're reading, but that's fascinating too because that's sort of full circle back to the Tibetan connection one thing.
0: Yes, and um, uh, and I'll also add that uh, Orson Welles portrayed the Shadow, and that's kind of uh, there's a, it's very easy to listen to those online. I remember as a little kid, I had a handful of records that were uh, you know old time radio, and uh, it was Orson Welles playing the Shadow, and uh, he was. You know, perfect as that voice. He had, he had, you know, such an amazing, beautiful voice. And uh, and then there's also, strangely enough, the tie-in between uh, uh, Orson Welles and the what amounts to, I don't know what you would say, the dawn of the UFO phenomenon. But in the late '30s, he did that uh, that Halloween night hoax of the War of the Worlds.
1: Or the world, yeah, tremendous influence on on modern mythology, absolutely.
0: And um, so, yeah, so so that, yeah, and I, this is something that I feel very strongly about is that that through one's intention, you know, one can create these these tulpas or these thought forms. And and I in one of the examples I will use is that uh, there's a UFO. Good grief, I don't even know if I'd call him a researcher. I don't know quite what he is. Uh, you know cult leader is as good a term as any named Stephen greer and uh and Stephen greer goes out and does these um night watches these sky watches and uh you know he, you know he's a very powerful charismatic character and i i do not doubt that he can uh, get a group of people together get them all focused you know get all their attention focused on seeing UFOs. And the result is that quite often they do see UFOs. Uh, and I, I recognize that as very much a reality. Um, the the interesting thing is, are they seeing, you know, how how we would define the modern UFOs? You know, I mean, for all, from everything I've seen, they're seeing little lights in the sky, which which are unidentified Flying objects for sure, but um, you know, you know, what are they? Are they, uh, you know, spacecraft f- and little metal spaceships that are far away, that uh, that come from another planet, or are they a tulpa of some sort? Are they a manifestation of of that kind of creative intention?
1: Oh I, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it, it's fascinating to me to look at it because. um, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about how to put this politically correct, but you know, within the, within the field of, of UFO studies, there's a lot of uh, gosh, there's there's so much argumentativeness. There's so many you know factions, for lack of a better word, and and there are some charismatic people out there in the field, but for some reason, he he really has caught people's attention. I mean. You know, a lot of these different writers and different people in in ufology have followings to some degree, but for some reason Greer has just become, um, you know, like like you say, I'll I'll agree with him. I mean, he's very charismatic and and he, you know, people pay attention to him and for some reason he's able to uh, generate people's interest and energy and it is, very fascinating to me that he has a high degree of results from his outings and he, it very well may be that there's some kind of a a collective consciousness focus going on during these things
0: yes and uh and i i, I stepped into the fray of this ufo thing very consciously you know like i uh started my own blog i started my you know which is you know a website where it's my own written work and i do these online things and i very consciously said i am not going to um add to the the pollution of this this pool there is a lot of cranky sniping uh involved in in uh this realm um the caveat being you know
1: what mike i, I gotta tell you that's that's very admirable
0: well, be careful! Be careful how much you praise me, because the the caveat is, um, except when it comes to Stephen Greer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, anybody that goes into the field, I think you can only go so far before you have to. You either shut up and leave the field, or you say something, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost inevitable that it happens, and you know, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I stayed. You know, I've been involved with the paranormal for. Uh, Actively investigating for thirty-five years now, and um,
0: thirty-five years. How old are you? Just about the same age as me. When were you born?
1: Yeah,
0: I, I started when I was a
1: teen. Invested- oh, that's right. Investigating my first uh, case, which was a poltergeist, when I was a teenager.
0: <laughs> and uh, oh, uh, yeah, that's so. You and I are. You were born in nineteen sixty-three. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I was born in 1962. Now this is something that I pay attention to. I won't go into it now. It's a long story. But I do pay attention to this very... There are a lot of us. Let me put it that way. There are a lot of people uh, doing this kind (laughs) of stuff. Mine is August 22nd, 1962. Okay. Okay.
1: Well, um, I'm trying to remember where I was going with... Oh, well, yeah. You know, what I was saying was... I I mean, I I use that term paranormal, and and it, I'll tell you the truth. it, It irritates some people. And um,
0: because they want it to be a crypto, they want the Bigfoot to be not paranormal. They want it to be a big hairy ape, or they don't want the UFO to be a uh, like an interdimensional, you know, collective consciousness interloper. They want it to be a metal thing you can bang their knuckles on.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah. And you know, I mean, back in the you know in the seventies when I started doing this stuff, you said paranormal, and people knew that you meant you know anything beyond the normal. I mean, that's essentially the definition of it. So it, it encompassed. Uh, cryptids and encompass UFO sightings uh, you know, haunted sites all of these things and, and really you know people I've had a couple of people argue with me and say well you, you know paranormal means haunted site," and I tell them no it doesn't you know look it up in the dictionary <laughs> you know just think about it and use your common sense no it, it means it means anything within the spectrum you know the, the term was co-opted by well I won't mention the show but some of the some of the more recent ghost hunting shows that have, you know, come on in the last 10 years and gained popularity sort of co-opted the term and and used paranormal as a term for haunted sites. That's really not what it's about. And, you know, I my belief, my personal belief is that we have to look at all of this stuff in a holistic manner. Because, you know... Over the years, what happened, all these organizations came along, and they wanted to make everything political and and divide everything up and say, well, you know, we we don't investigate any of that. We investigate Bigfoot, you know, and and we don't investigate anything but UFOs. If you you saw a UFO and a Bigfoot at the same time, you're crazy. Get away from me. But you look at sites around the world that are, are these hot spots, and you'll find hotbeds of sightings all the way across the board.
0: And a, and a oh, phone good. will dial your number when it, when it passes through Point Pleasant, yeah. well, uh, West like Virginia. West,
1: West Virginia, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I mean, I think that there's, it's all more connected than a lot of people in the field are willing to admit, although that is changing.
0: And and it is changing, and I think it's changing. I mean, whatever the, the, those you know, in the scientific community, they say things change one funeral at a time. Uh, you know, as the old guard dies out. So I don't know whether it's you know changing, whether the the funerals are happening at the at the top end or whether there's just a new blog starting at the bottom end. Uh, but but things are changing, and I think it's just the availability, the rapid fire availability of information on the internet is as uh, silly as that sounds. I think that has actually had a profound impact on how this information gets absorbed.
1: You know, I think it's a handful of things too. I mean, it's yeah, that that definitely is a big factor. The internet is changing, you know, everything in the world we live in essentially. But if you add in the fact that a lot of the people in the paranormal field that are sort of up and coming are more interested in things across the board and they, they might be interested in cryptids and UFOs and haunted sites and you know, they're they're starting to look at these things in a different way. And at the same time, ufology in particular has always had this sort of old guard. There's a handful of people that have run around, like I, talking about the same thing for, you know, 30 years, giving the same lecture for, for 29 years. And <laughs> people, if people want something new. You know, they want to sort of... Uh, move beyond that basic foundation and, and, you know, start looking ahead. And, and in modern times, I mean, we can, we can talk endlessly about Roswell and it's clear that something happened there, but, you know, should we spend all of our time focusing on it? I, I don't think so because that prevents us from moving forward.
0: You, you know what I've been doing, which, which I've been, cataloging i 'll put a link to it during in the show notes here because it 's actually something I care deeply about in the sense that that it 's a phenomena that 's fascinating i 've been cataloging people who have their own websites or their own blogs usually it 's in the form of a blog and um, where they share their first hand abduction experiences uh, mm-hmm. and they you know they they share them in a way like there's a bunch of uh, I could just cite some some situations where the person is saying You know here 's what happened to me last night and they their 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 narrative uh is frenetic it 's emotional it's it's highly charged as opposed to if they had written a book where they would have had to wait ten years and collect all kinds of information and they would and that that same narrative would have been written out um you know, 10 years ago, as I was coming to terms with this or whatever, I had this experience and it played out like this. That's not what you're getting in an online format. Um, and uh, to me, that I, I only see the number of these sites growing. Obviously, I don't, you know, there was for for obvious reasons, there was no such thing as a blog a decade ago. And now there is. And now people are, um, uh, you know, feel compelled to do this, you know, and that's actually one of the things that shows up in these, these written narratives is very often they, people will say, and I can sort of add myself to this, they, they'll say, uh, I, I feel compelled to share this information, you know, the time is now, I need to come forward and share this information. Um, you know, the implications of that, you, you can, you know, it depends on how you want to follow that, but, you know, there's, there's from my you know, cataloging these things, and then I'm—I've gotten to the point where I just go ahead and connect with these people. I just send them a note and say like, "Hey, what's up?" And why'd you start your site? And and you know, engage in a dialogue with them, and it's fascinating. But you know, th- this is happening right now. You know, i, I um, I've sat through Stanton Friedman's uh, presentation. And it was great he's a great presenter it, He does a beautiful job of selling that uh though I'm sort of at the point where I don't need someone to sell the reality of this phenomena to me anymore um i'm I'm more than convinced that something very real is going on and th- these uh these uh you know this this communication through people having these experiences uh is happening right now online and uh uh, and I think it's having an impact. It's changing the way we collectively look at this phenomena overall. Maybe slowly, but it is.
1: I absolutely agree, with you. and and I think uh, you know we've we've all sat through Stanton Friedman's lectures, and yeah, he's he's a good speaker. I mean, he's he's intelligent. He knows what he's talking about. But you know, Stanton, God love him, has been given the same lecture for years, and if you've heard it, you've heard it. People want information that is, is in the now. And that's why these, you know, like these blogs you're talking about, the things that, you know, the the active cases that are happening now, that's what people want to know about, you know, because a good portion of the people in the field, they're on one side of the fence or the other already. You know, they already know, okay, something weird is going on. You know, some of them fall into the camp of, of True believers, with whatever their version of that is, you know, they're, they're convinced they're aliens from, you know, Alpha Centauri or whatever. You know, other people believe it's some kind of government thing or something. But if people, I don't, I don't think most of these people, I don't think they need convinced anymore. But they do want information, and they do want to know. Okay, these things are happening. What, what do we do with it? How do we learn more? Where do we go from here? And you know, you, you see that all across the board, and different types of phenomena if we you know we could draw the same correlation if we go to, to Bigfoot and talk about you know there there are hundreds of sightings every year you know people are seeing these creatures and and having different levels of encounters with them but there's a huge segment of cryptozoology that uh, are people who sit around studying the Patterson Gimlin film you know this happened in 1967 you either believe the film is authentic or you don't it, you know just move beyond it (laughs) and and see what we can do now with the evidence that we have before us now and and don't get me wrong you know I've studied in depth a lot of the the classic cases you know so to speak and and there's some amazing things that obviously happened in the past but uh, you know we have to we have to be in the now and and, you know talk about what we're doing with all of this in order to to keep moving the field
0: forward and and um Another thing that's emerging as the field moves forward—it's kind of moving forward organically from the grassroots up, as opposed to uh, uh, in a uh, academic way from the you know elder statesman down. Um,
1: because the organizations aren't in control anymore, and that's that's one of the things that's fascinating about the field right now.
0: Organizations like um, the UFO Congress and like MUFON and like uh, yeah,
1: like you know, I mean, in you know, in the past, everything was sort of guided by MUFON in a sense, Uh, you know, all of these sightings went through this organization, you know, they were clusters of different groups, and it's not so much the case now anymore, you know, and even people, I have lots of friends in MUFON, and, you know, even the people involved in MUFON, a lot of them are are sort of organically moving forward, to use your term, you know, outside of the boundaries of the organization itself in some ways.
0: You know, one of the things that I, and I've never actually seen the, uh, the, the MUFON report, you know, I'm, I suspect there's a, uh, a questionnaire, like a, you know, a form that you've put on your clipboard with a pen and you go to the site and you ask the witness these questions. And I, right. and I feel strongly that on that list, you know, it doesn't say now come back in one year and ask these questions. You know, how has your spirituality changed? You know, like, are you having certain dreams, uh, you know, uh, how do you define reality? Do you believe in reincarnation? Those kind of things don't get asked, I suspect, on the, on the MUFON form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so I'm just... Are you familiar with a fellow named Dan Mitchell? I know that name. He wrote a blog uh, for a while called Luminosity, and then he just changed the blog, and now it's called Transmissions from the Imaginal. And he, and he literally... Well, there's probably a number of reasons, but one of the reasons he did was he stopped the old blog... Where he, this is this is one of those blogs where someone 's talking about their experiences now he has he has UFO I experiences
1: that old blog. i remember living
0: off spooky stuff yeah that so um but he one of the things he said was that uh, he stopped his old blog, Luminosity, and and, uh, and I think he's just he just needs to write. He needs to get this stuff out. He needs to purge it. He's, he writes in a kind of uh, you know uh, intense and earnest way that you know you can sell, he can tell this stuff is yeah therapeutic and welling up inside of him and needs to get out. But uh, he uh, you know one of the things he said was that you know he felt that his his old blog. Because of the the way he was dwelling on things was having a like an almost an alchemical impact on people people were reading the blog and claiming experiences very much the way you were describing earlier that uh, people were reading the black-eyed children book and having experiences and and you know he closed it down you can't access those old pages anymore and now he started a new blog uh, and you know I found that. You know, on, I found that scary, spooky on one level, and then I, you know, it was—it's more than a little bit fascinating. Yeah,
1: yeah, that, that is.
0: Jason, Jason Offit uh, often references his one of his stories that involves a character, uh, sort of a a demonic entity. Demonic, maybe that's a strong term. You know, a very frightening entity that he called um, the, the the Harlequin. Hey, I'm just going to jump back a little bit to your story about um, uh, the author of the Shadow books, uh, uh, Walter Gibson. I almost called him William Gibson, the uh, the steampunk author. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, so here's a little oddity. Robert Monroe, who wrote uh, Journeys Out of the Body and started the Monroe Institute, sure. worked as a technician – on the radio show, The Shadow. I just think I just think that's like you know you couldn't make that stuff up. You know what I mean? So
1: yeah, I've seen the reference to that somewhere before, and that's, that's, yeah, that's another weird uh, you know synchronicity that um, that's the kind of thing that happens when you start looking at these cases. I mean, it's just it's fascinating to me. You can sort of follow this you know spiderweb like uh, trail that leads in multiple directions is just like i referenced earlier you know here we've got this concept of a tulpa that you know or originates in tibet and kind of comes full circle with the shadow you know and his possible origin being tibet and it, it's just uh it, it's fascinating how many of these little strands we can
0: follow and and i'll also add that walter excuse me <clears throat> i'll also add that uh, christopher Knowles. Uh, who's a who's a blogger as well as an author? He wrote a book called Our Gods Wear Spandex, and he wrote about um, Walter Gibson and, and talked about the fact that he was uh, a magician as well as being you know deeply immersed in mysticism and the occult. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which is exactly what Lamont Cranston was was immersed in. You know, he was he was dabbling in these dark arts. Lamont Cranston being the the, the sort of uh, uh, you know, what's the term, the non-hero name or the, of, of, uh, of the shadow.
1: Right, one of his, uh, one of his human guises, supposedly. And, and of course, you know, we go, uh, we can go this other route and, and sort of trace other connections because the, the whole concept of a tulpa was something that I discussed in the Hat Children book with the possibility that they are indeed tulpas themselves. And, uh, you know, coming out of a, a Tibetan origin, just like the shadow, we find that the shadow has this ability to cloud men's minds, and you know, to uh, <laughs> to sort of just through speaking to them, cause them to go into a hypnotic trance.
0: Very much like that woman was saying that she felt like she was being hypnotized.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: Now, exactly. now, in, in here's I don't know if you have an answer for this, but is there like a starting point for the shadow uh, person phenomena? Um, I know that uh, the the Walter Gibson didn't he die like in like the early 1980s?
1: Uh, yeah, he did, and um, there's not, you know, that's one of those things that's sort of vague. I mean, you can go back to really old stories. I. I've, speak with a lot of native americans and you know i've heard native stories of these uh, shadow beings so to answer that is is really rather difficult it's kind of like saying you know where did this phenomenon begin or this one i mean even ufo's i mean we can go back to you know for instance the airship sightings of the 1800s and say well you know it's kind of ufo's and you know, people, of course, are digging now into even more ancient sightings. Uh, same with the shadow people. You know, we go back and, and find traditional stories that talk about these uh, shadow beings or, or, quote, beings that live in the shadows. And uh, I think what happens is that phenomena... I think a lot of these phenomena, they've existed for as long as human memory possible, and possibly. And, and what happens is that our... Uh, you know our our culture at the time sort of begins to define it and change it in some way so you know these these, whatever these beings are they've now become shadow people and uh, you know there's a whole set of things that they've become associated with you know with haunted sites or uh, you know whatever and it's funny because even within that phenomena people get very adamant about what they believe they are you know oh they're they're not ghosts, they're evil beings that live in this other dimension, you know, and you know, other people that believe, oh, they're, they're the spirits of, you know, murderers or evil people that died and, and as, you know, because they were so evil, they've come back as a shadow person. And, you know, we really just don't know. Right? I think it's, I don't think it's a good idea to get so set in what you, you know, really believe that this thing is without evidence that you're closing yourself off to other possibilities
0: yes and, and i 'm going to tell you a story that I know I told you directly uh, when we were when we met in, uh, in uh, at the conference in Arizona in february but uh, and people who have listened to these podcasts, I throw this one in periodically and uh, I talked to this woman on the phone for a while one day uh, after hearing her. Uh, an excerpt of her interview. I think it was on the Jeff Reds show. Maybe I'll link that one on onto this onto this thing here. but um her name is Suzanne, and she lives in Canada. She's a Native American heritage, and she was helping someone uh, through. Um, a, a health issue. So the person, you know, ended up dying. I think it was some sort of cancer, and it was a friend of hers, and she was mourning. So she had a teepee on her property, so she left her house, and she has a kids and husband, and so she, you know, walked out. It was, uh, I think it was nighttime, and she walked out and uh, built a fire in the teepee and banged it, you know, was was pounding on a drum and and doing a sort of a ritual of mourning. And during that ritual, she felt something push the back of the teepee, like the fabric of the teepee pushed into her and touched her back. Mm -hmm. And so she didn't know what it was. So she walked out and she looked around and there was five Bigfoot standing really close to the teepee, like a family of Bigfoot. Um, This is interesting. I don't know how many kids she has. So, you know, what a family unit would amount to. So just, I'm just thinking aloud right now. So she sees, she gets totally freaked out. She runs back in. She stokes the fire. She pounds the drum as loud as she can. Uh, When she gets the nerve up, she peeks her head out the door again. She sees the the five Bigfoot, but this time they've moved away. They've moved downhill towards a little stream that's running in, in near her property. She runs back into the house. She... You know, when Susie gets into the house, the kids are in a flurry. They're in a panic. They're saying, "Mom, Mom, there's something going on. We're seeing these shadow beings in the house. There's like this weird entity, you know, like shadow beings are in the house." And um, and so she goes, "Oh my gosh, I got to go run and tell her husband." So the husband is in the garage, which is in a separate building. Um, so she leaves the house and walks down the path. Then it connects her home to uh, the the garage, and in doing so, she sees a giant triangular f- UFO. Hovering above the garage uh and this this u f o kind of kind of she just says it's like flitting in and out of reality like a like a hologram that's a little staticky, so you know right there. Uh, here's this one person, you're getting all kinds of things all colliding all at once. You've got this, you know, potentially the spirit entity of the friend who died, you've got the, the performing the uh, ritual, you've got uh, the Bigfoot, you've got the shadow people, you've got a UFO, and not only a UFO but a UFO that's like flitting in and out of hologram form. Um, right. And I will say that that took place, I think it was August 15th, I want to say 2005. And, um, and I have a friend of mine uh, and she refers to this as her awakening experience. And um, typical of Facebook, you know, on August 15th, she she posted, you know, last year on August 15th, she said, you know, it's the sixth year of my awakening experience on August 15th. And I scrolled down the page a little bit and uh, the woman that I referred to as my... Uh, that gave me the psychic reading the day my cat got all freaked out her name is Anya Briggs and uh, and I scrolled down that same Facebook page and she says I think it was it was August 15th 2008 and so she said you know it's August 15th 2008 the 5th year of my awakening experience was was almost word for word almost side by side on my on my Facebook wall uh, so, so you know this convergence of synchronicities and and Native American lore and and psychics, and, and I will also add that this woman, uh, Suzanne, that woman from Canada who had the the multiple experiences, works as a psychic, um, you know, w- with health issues as well as solving crimes with the Canadian police. Uh, I mean, this the the, the interwoven you use the term spider web before you know there's like this almost stickiness to this phenomena that just stuff gets stuck in it just like a spider web
1: yeah and you know again that's uh you know that's a great story and I do remember that one it's it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating and again it's one of those cases like I was referencing earlier that you know the organizations uh, that exist most of them would not want to hear that story because it, it just involves too many different kinds of phenomena. And and it's it's bizarre to me because somewhere along the way, uh, when everything became so sort of political, these groups developed this philosophy that uh, you know, if if various kinds of phenomena happened at the same time, it all must be a lie.
0: Yes. And I could just—I would love to like get the waste paper basket from like the earliest earliest days of of uh, Kufos or something like that, you know. Uh, right. And just find out what they threw out. I mean, that's what the really meaty stuff to my—that's that's the stuff I'm drawn to. I'm so completely bored with little dots in the sky. It doesn't interest me in the slightest.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the uh, it, it's that's a fascinating area to me because you know that's. um that's just such a rich uh, realm to start exploring, and really can bring us, I think, a deeper understanding of all of the associated phenomena. You know, and, and why, you know, why do we have areas like Skinwalker Ranch, or you know, the Superstition Mountains in Arizona, um, you know, parts of Sedona, and there's places like this all over the world, and. You know, you see, you know, waves of cryptid sightings, and, you know, UFO encounters, and just all these various things. And um, I, I, that to me is just a, that's a really rich area to to delve into, and that's something that I've tried to to focus on over the last several years, and and sort of explore these areas and find out more about what's happening, and even. Even the public, you know, the people that you interview, I, I've interviewed people that, uh, you know, doing it for so long, you get a sense of when people are holding things back, you know, when they're being up front, when they're not uh, giving the whole picture. And It's funny how often I've encountered people that, you know, start telling me, you know, about uh, an encounter with, you know, seeing a Bigfoot and, they're leaving something out, you know, and, and when you finally get it out of them, it's say, well, you know, we, there was a UFO, <laughs> and, you know, why why didn't you tell me all this to begin with? Well, we didn't want you to think we were crazy. So, you know, our, our, <laughs> our, uh, our society has put these different parameters on things, depending on the person's background and their upbringing and everything else, but make certain areas taboo and not others sometimes so you know there are people who are perfectly comfortable saying they saw some kind of weird light in the sky they think you know it's a ufo just because they don't know what it is but you know you ask them if they believe in bigfoot and you know well i'm not crazy i'm not stupid and then you'll find the reverse is true you know yeah. you'll find people think, well you know there's some kind of weird creature that lives in, in this forest and, and you know uh, we believe it's out there. We know it's out there. And even though we've never seen one, but uh, don't ask us about UFOs or ghosts because we're not crazy. So it's just, it's, it's funny how, uh, you know, those sort of self-created boundaries have sprung up over the years. And and it's also interesting now to me that I see them starting to erode.
0: Got yeah, it's about time. And I think that the, ero- I mean, whatever the, i er- am it's I'm, I'm not really trying to, convince anyone of anything, but it's certainly been my, uh, avenue of fascination. You know, the stuff that really, you know, lights me up is, is the, the, the fringe stuff that, uh, seems to cross all those boundaries.
1: Right. Right. And I, I think, you know, people, uh, people trash all the paranormal shows that are on now. And I, I you know, my personal view of those is that there's, there's positive and negative to them. And uh, I think one of the positive effects we've had from the popularity, you know, because the paranormal really has become a part of pop culture now, and the positive effect from the plethora of those shows is that it's made people more comfortable with the idea that, hey, there's other people out there looking for this stuff. There's other people that you know maybe wouldn't think I'm crazy if I say I saw a ghost or, you know, a, a UFO or whatever, and that's uh, you know that's that's been the upside to that. It's made people more a little bit more open and more willing to discuss these things.
0: Yes. Hey, you said something earlier, and you said you were um, you know talking with shamans and had had talked with a lot of uh, uh, shaman elders. And just what? How does that? Uh, is that just a personal passion, or is that part of the overall research?
1: You know, it's funny because um, the, the two things that I found myself passionate about when I was a kid were um, all aspects of the paranormal and aspects of, you know, what I identified as a kid as, as magic or a ritual, and it sort of uh, put me on, on what was a dual path for, and, and even what I identified as a dual path for a little while and uh you know i sought out a lot of teachers from various traditions that i could study with and an apprentice but what i found over time was that the two really intermingled and and sort of fused together in really in a complete fashion as far as i'm concerned and uh, part of the reason for that is that you know these native cultures whether they're from Native America or Africa or Tibet, you know, wherever they they have a more open mindset about things that our modern world would define as paranormal. You know, so they have levels of comfort with, for instance, different levels of beings that exist, you know, whether they're in our dimension or another dimension, you know, with spirit forms, with uh, you know, even with some of the cryptids that exist. So it's been. It's been pretty amazing for me because, like I said, the two are just completely melded together as far as i can concerned. And and, and th- a, the whole concept of tulpa is a perfect example because, you know, my first exposure to that in practical form was uh, through some Tibetan. Milk.
0: And and this is fascinating. Now, now here's a couple of just pragmatic questions about, because about, uh, I'm fascinated by the concept of shamanism, though I, I don't do any real research, but I just, it seems to show up over and over again as I do the UFO research. Not so much uh, the definition of shaman, but I just find that like, wow, is this, you know, how do you define, you know, is there a pattern of the initiation of the shaman that you've seen? pattern? Yeah, I mean, like, is there a pattern like a Native American would have the same initiation rites as a Tibetan elder?
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, You know, there are definitely uh, correlations. Um, For instance, you know, most shamanic cultures will deal with an altered state of consciousness in some way. Now, people often make the mistake just because of some of the modern shamanic traditions that have become popular in the west that that means some kind of a hallucinogen or mind-altering drug but that's not always the case uh, there are a lot of ways to reach an altered state of consciousness you know meditation um chanting we'll find dancing in some cultures and uh you know drumming and music tones. so that's something that uh very much a common thread of shamanic cultures around the world is this ability that the shaman learns or develops or or has naturally to reach an altered state of consciousness in order to work with spirits or to um, achieve uh, gain information that's valuable to the people Uh, sometimes it's used for healing purposes to go in and, and learn what is really wrong with someone on an energetic level so you know that's one of the big commonalities that we find another thing that i find a lot of these cultures have in common is a level of awareness that surpasses the the modern world you know shamanic practitioners tend to be much more in touch with what's happening within their environment you know, not just within the room that they're sitting in or, or the circle that they're in but even what's beyond that and that's something that I think this, this world has really suffered for having lost touch with you know, because there are just too many people that you know are completely disconnected and I, I was talking with uh, a friend of mine uh, Barry Fitzgerald who a lot of people will know from Just Tunnels International and he and I were having this whole discussion about this this modern uh, loss of awareness, and he was saying, "Yeah, you know, I, I was I was taking a walk in the park recently, and I saw someone walking in the park, and they had their iPod on. You know, they had earplugs plugged in. They're, they're not even taking the time to be in touch and be aware of their surroundings and you know what they're uh, what they could potentially experience from being in touch with nature just for that brief time. So, you know, our our modern world has become so ADHD in a lot of ways, and it's so much about you know what what's the next website that's up, you know what's the next uh, you know, thing that's available on iTunes, you know what's what's the hottest video game that's out, and uh, sadly over the years people have transferred that mindset into their spirituality. You know, I. I <laughs> I frequently,
0: I frequently and then they and then programs. they go on uh, uh, like a night watches with uh, Stephen Greer <laughs> yeah.
1: You know I, I use the term that we live in a, a fast food culture and you know we use that as sort of a model for how everyone well not everyone but you know such a large portion of the population they practically live on fast food and you know they want to be able to drive up place their order and you know These people are irritated if they're, if they're waiting for two minutes at the window for their food. They're, they're really bothered because they've got to get on to the next thing.
0: And they're waiting, they have to wait more than two minutes for enlightenment. They're going to be annoyed too, you know?
1: (laughs) Right, right. So, you know, these, these people come along and they want their, you know, they want their spirituality in the same way they can get their fast food. (laughs) (laughs) Can't I just have it now? You know, what's, what's the quick version of the ritual? You know?
0: and that's the problem with the UFO phenomena is that if you want the quick version you just get stuck with metal spaceships in the sky and you anthropomorphize the you know the occupants as just scientists or here doing scientific experiments just like we do when we go to the moon you know we you know that so so we can in a very fast food you know highly uh sugar uh you know what do you call like high carbohydrate version of the uh of the uh right. ufo phenomena is that you know is that they are you know just us just a little farther down the road and i can wrap my mind around that and that's the end of it the end you know uh and then and then uh, but that but that ain't so uh you know you have to you have to and you know, it doesn't even take that long. Once you start following it, even just a little bit, you realize that there's a, a deep a depth to this, to this or these subjects that goes way beyond the uh, the fast food concept.
1: Hey, um. Well, that, that's a good analogy. and It kind of makes the uh, the old guard in, in ufology out to be like McDonald's, you know, eight billion or whatever it is.
0: <laughs> well, maybe less McDonald's, but I just think of if we turn the clock back 40 years, you know, every town would have had, uh, you know. Two different hamburger joints, and now it's even the smallest towns. Like I live in a tiny little town, and we've got a Thai restaurant, and two Mexican restaurants, and you know, in uh, that just that's phenomenal. You know, right? Yeah. Um, so, so uh, as for back to shamans, are does a shaman uh, is he does he choose to be a shaman, or is he is he chosen? By the society, or let's say, even is he chosen by the, the you know whatever is behind the curtain, the gods. To you know, how how does the shaman, you know, take his place in the society?
1: You know, all all three of those are potential scenarios for how a shaman comes to be. Um, now, most of the cultures are, are pretty consistent in saying that, you no, know, you were chosen, you know, before birth or, or at birth um and what happens is uh, circumstances will dictate how that happens now in in some tribal cultures we'll see things like uh, you know a child that's born um, sometimes we'll see a, a child that, that's born with a defect is they believe is marked by the spirit uh, sometimes we'll see... Um, there's this whole archetype of what's called the wounded healer that we find in a lot of shamanic traditions and it often entails someone very often a young person who becomes very ill when they're young and possibly at the edge of death or maybe even having a a NDE type of experience
0: that's I was going to add that yeah
1: yeah and they survive that and that gives them this, uh, you know, that puts them on the shamanic path, so to speak. And sort of uh, is the way that they've been marked, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, it, it's interesting, too, because I find, you know, meeting other people who are on a shamanic path, it's, it's very common that something along those lines happened to them when they were young. I mean, I had the same experience. I had, uh, when I was young, I had bronchitis and developed pneumonia from the bronchitis. And, uh, you know, I had just this whole, well, long experience. I won't go into it at the moment, but essentially, you know, that was sort of my crossing point.
0: Wait, was uh, it a near-death experience? Told me. Was it a near-death experience? Yeah, it was. Good grief! Okay, now so this is something that I've heard over and over again that the uh, that the that the you know t- in order to be a shaman you have to have died whether ritualistically or um you know or you know there so there you are in a position this I've heard this over and over and over again uh, people who have uh, you know had these kind of experiences now here I'm just gonna. Uh, like, if there's an author, um, Michael Talbot. I just had this conversation a few days ago. It showed up on a previous uh, podcast. Are you familiar with Michael Talbot? Yeah, I know. He he wrote the book, um, The Holographic Universe. So he had a near-death experience in his youth. He grew up in a haunted house. He had paranormal experiences, uh... Psychic experiences growing up, and then he goes on to produce uh, you know what I consider you know one of the more important books of of this kind of new thought uh the holographic universe now if if I sat down with a um uFO abduction researcher, I could name a few, and, and sort of gave his little bio, they would sort of nod their head, and they would kind of like wisely kind of like say, hmm, Michael Talbot was a UFO uh, abductee, just just given those clues. Now, uh, you, and I suspect you could give those same clues to a shaman elder, and he would sort of nod and knowingly say, hmm, you know, near-death experience, psychic experiences, Michael Talbot was a shaman. So to me, there's a blending of, of of this of these phenomena you know that, that that's happening on multiple levels
1: absolutely and I, I mean we can again you know to use the spider web analogy we could follow this in a lot of directions because you know, I've got I'm, I've got uh, mixed heritage I've got a lot of Celtic heritage and uh, you know tracing back I've studied a lot of the ancient um, Irish and Scottish lore <laughs> you want to talk about some fascinating stuff you go back and start researching the old uh, tales about the fae you know the, the little people that you know it's been again it's something that's been westernized and americanized you say fairies and people think automatically about tinkerbell running around with little wings and, and flinging a wand about but no man you go back to those old tales and you've got stories that are akin to ufo abductions you know, you've got people being taken in a bright light. You know, their bodies are immobilized. Uh, you know, they they experience all these weird things, and you know, there's there's a tremendous deal of correlation that you can draw between ancient Celtic lore and modern ufology. Now, or in particular, modern abductions.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, it's, it's I agree. Fascinating
1: because I, I, I uh, there, there's this... There statistics out there that I would love to be able to verify, and I've heard it from a number of sources, and it says that the number of abductees with either Irish or Cherokee heritage is extremely high.
0: Now, I've heard that, too, you know, but then you have to think that, you know, well, like in Korea there's probably just as many abductees as there is anywhere else, and I suspect that in that other population, the researchers there are, you know, pinpointing other lineages that, that, you know, that may tie into that, but I have heard that, and and I will...
1: I don't don't know that there is, though, Mike, because, you know, I've spent a lot of time in China, and uh, I was, I went to China to study Daoism, and when I, I was there, you know, I was obviously was interested in the paranormal and, and as well as the shamanic aspects of this Dallas lineage that I was studying but you know you didn't hear as much um, about abductions or those types of stories from there and you would think with a culture as old as China is there are certainly sightings there but you know I, and I have a couple of friends in China now and I, I periodically ask what's going on you know, with the UFO scene there and Although there are sightings, the there's not really this whole tradition, for lack of a better word, of abductees that's coming out of there. Now, maybe that's just because you know the Chinese people are so reserved that they don't talk about it. But it, it's rather curious to me that we don't have at least
0: some. Wow, that is interesting. So, so um, what's your heritage?
1: Uh, it's, it's mostly Irish and. Scottish. I've got some. Um, I've got some uh, Apache Indian in there, and uh, you know, still work period. My wife periodically works on the you know the family history, but um, you know, I remember all kinds of stories about my Irish ancestors from when I was growing
0: up, and, and
1: you know, some of the weird things they were involved in. So,
0: and what's your blood type? Um, gosh, you know. I can't
1: remember what my blood type is at the moment
0: it's uh i'm just wondering that because there's a lot of talk of um, the rh negative stuff
1: yeah yeah um so anyway you know it's it's really uh it, it's really fascinating to look at some of the different cultural connections to what's going on in modern times I don't know how we got way off into that
0: oh that's fine this conversations have a way now so here's here's where I'm going with this I, I have sort of a, I'm sort of writing these notes down and so 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 you've had a near-death experience um, your Celtic heritage as well as a Native American heritage uh, you've um, you're you've been your under, you're like 48 years old and you've been researching this for 35 years. That's, that's I'm 49. Yeah, I'll be 50 next year. Okay. So I'll be 50 in a month. And, and, uh, um, so, uh, y- 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 now, um, th- my, you've been studying, uh, shaman, you've been, you know, making making an effort to meet shamans. I would have to say, this is not, you know, whatever that, that, you know, where does the when do you actually become anointed and become a shaman? So my thought is, is like, if I needed some advice, I would turn to you as the, as the village, you know, elder, you know, if, uh, I mean, do you see where I'm going with this? I, have actually, I asked, uh, um, oh, Brad Steiger, the same question in a way, like, you know, the question is, so here's the question I asked Brad Steiger and, and in a way I'm asking you the same question is like, are you a shaman?
1: Yeah, yes.
0: Yes, you are. Okay, good. Brad Steiger hemmed and hawed and said no. So uh, good for you for, like, <laughs> stepping up to the plate and, like, admitting it. Okay, I didn't know that. So, and, I mean, and how do you, um, I mean, how, you know, how do you, How what, what gives you the, you know, the confidence to just say it so plainly?
1: I'd have to say because, uh, you know, I, I've been through... Initiation Initiation Processes That You know Basically Bestow that Title on me
0: How come I have never Heard you say this In any of these Interviews Or anything like that (laughs)
1: Because it's not Something one That comes up Very often And two That uh, you know That I, I talk About a whole lot Now there's a number Of reasons for that One is that It's you know It's something that A lot of people Don't fully Understand or comprehend You know We have Uh a culture that has sort of a predefined mindset, and you say shaman, and a lot of people say, "Oh, it means he, you know, he beats a drum, and he, you know, he wears a bunch of feathers, and he, you know,
0: he trips out in peyote." In yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: or, you know, uh, other people will think that it means, you know, I, I sit around drinking ayahuasca or down in mushrooms or whatever. It's not really. There's not really any of those things.
0: Now, it you know, given certain cultural iconographies, it could be some of those things. But but uh, now, um, here, let me just jump back to the story I started earlier where I was uh, uh, had that strange experience in the tent, okay? Uh, right. So what I did after that, right? So here we are. Natasha and I are stuck in this little town. I call up. Do you know a woman named um, Miriam Delicato? No, I don't think so. She's worked a lot with the Hopi Indians and, mm-hmm. and has had her own... Uh, like, you know. I mean, profound contact experience where she was stopped on the side of the road in 1988 when she was 22 years old and, you know, told in no uncertain terms by these glorious, blonde, beautiful aliens that she was going to come forward one day with her story. And they downloaded her with all kinds of information. And now uh, this woman is on fire with a, with a mission. And some of that is to preserve ancient cultures. And some of that is to, you know, uh, talk about, uh, Oh, just the UFO phenomena. Now, uh, so, so here we are down in the Four Corners area. For some reason, I knew she was in the area. So uh, Natasha and I get on the phone. We, you know, threw, didn't take long. We got a hold of her. And we said, listen, we're down here in the Four Corners area. What do we do? And she says, you go do a sweat lodge experience with Harold, the the shaman in um, Canyon de che, mm-hmm. So we go down there. And that's where I took my shirt off, is is doing the sweat lodge Thing you know, basically, it wasn't quite just before I stepped into the to the sweat lodge, but it was around that time. Uh, right. and, uh, and sure enough, I was like, "What the heck is this big scratch?" Uh, so, in the sweat lodge initiation was completely initiation. I'll say experience. You know, a guided experience through the through through the uh, you know with uh, with this fellow who I liked enormously. You know, he's funny and and so uh, and the 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 sweat lodge experience is a death and rebirth experience. So I start this whole thing with the brakes going out on the car, the the uh, the mechanic coming out and saying, "You can't leave this. I can't give you the car back, or you'll die." You know. So there's like, I mean, that was that's that is as integral a part of the story as as you know, saying, "Am I on a table?" You know. Like I I just I can't separate that from the overall story. And then the entire experience ends with what I consider a very beautiful, powerful. Uh, surrender experience with within the the, the sweat lodge. Um, I'm not sure what I'm saying. I certainly don't feel like a shaman, but uh, but I'm, what I'm saying is that I felt like there was a, a magical set of experiences that uh, that the the end result is that that it transformed me. It it, it guided me to a higher uh, ability to you know whatever. A lot of things have done that, but I, but I feel like that experience. Has made it much much harder for me to say like, oh, I'm probably not a UFO abductee. I'm I'm definitely on the side of of saying that I've experienced something in my life. Uh, the vocabulary UFO abductee is not rich enough to define what I've experienced. Right. And I'm I guess I'm coming to the shaman now and asking your advice. And you know, am I? You know, what can I do?
1: In in terms
0: of. From this point what? forward, how I lead my life. From this point forward. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, you've you've essentially, in some ways, uh, with what you're, you know, with what little I know about you in these terms, you know, you you've sort of been put on a shamanic path because shamanism is about transformation, and you know, people get so hung up on on these titles and terms, and what they end up doing is they create. Um, they create these little boxes because that's how people are comfortable operating. You know, if they can fit you in this box, they understand you and they can relate to you. But if you break the boundaries of of any of those boxes and those definitions, it becomes more difficult to know how to relate to you. Uh, and, And I hope you understand where I'm going here. So it's just like, you know, at a party, it's very common for people. They don't know each other. They're mingling around. What's one of the first things they ask? What do yeah, what, you
0: do? what do you do for a living? Sure.
1: And, you know, the person says, oh, I'm a doctor or you know, I'm a lawyer you know." whatever. They they immediately, they have parameters within which to relate to this person. And the thing about shamanism, is especially, you know, when we get into what you would term maybe cross-cultural shamanism uh, that's not defined by any one specific traditions. So in other words, you're not you know, you're not a Navajo shaman or you're not a, um, you know, just in a specific cultural tradition. If you're cross-cultural exploring, then you're breaking those uh, restrictions and using this transformative process to move forward. So, you know, I would call your experiences from what I know of them uh, to be very shamanic and to say that you know, whether you choose to learn, the, use the term or not, you're on a shamanic path because you're on this path of, of learning and exploring and, and expanding your awareness. And that's really well within the bounds of shamanism.
0: Great. I mean, this is this is it's so interesting. I had no idea as I proceeded forward um, that, you know, I actually, at the end of the last two questions, the only two questions I'm going to ask at this point... Um, you know well actually i'm going to ask one more so the last three two of them are uh are you know like shamans i just put shaman's question mark and that was on my notes here uh and uh the other ones are owls and then i want to hear your bigfoot story before we before we uh end this but, but you know so you said you're what what do you call a multidisciplinary shaman
1: uh cross cultural shamanism is a term that's used a lot
0: okay uh, okay i when, just
1: when you start exploring sort of modern shamanism you'll find that there are a lot of uh, a lot of varying degrees and a lot of people that get on one particular uh, shamanic path and they study it specifically and, and that's what they're initiated in and that's where they you know that defines everything uh, for them and if it works for them that's great you know if there's a particular culture or group of people that they're drawn to that's, that's great um, for me personally you know i just always felt this need from the time i was young to explore the different traditions now i found the common threads and you know that linked them all and that was how i chose to explore things uh and and it sort of came together for me in a very organic constantly evolving process and and, you know it's uh it's flowed very well and it's, it's worked for me in my life um as far as uh, what was the other part of that question? I, I get off on these
0: tangents. Oh, and I get off on the tangents too. That we're we're having it, like this is that's that's the sign of a good conversation. I think is when you can't oh, like yeah, cool. get So, uh, but here one of the things I was going to say is this is just an aside. If you're, if there's a there's a uh, I think he's a Taoist or a Buddhist. His name is Han? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he wrote a book, and he basically, this is just something, I, this is the only thing that stuck with me from the book, and I thought it was beautiful. Uh, he, you know, he was at some sort of uh, conference, and there was, you know, he was representing the 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 Taoist side of, of the table, and, and on the other, you know, there was all these people from different religions, and, and uh, they were going to compare and contrast things, and there was someone there from, uh, you know, the Catholic Church, and he kind of spoke up, and he said, now, wait a minute, you know, like, I'm not here to make fruit salad, and then to, with to which Thich Nhat Hanh replied, "You know, like I have, ex- I have had fruit salad, and I find it delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, whatever that means. Um, but, but, um, okay. So, so, what's your now? You told me, and I just want you to tell the audience you have a, a Bigfoot story uh, of seeing Bigfoot, and this would have been now here. You, where does this fit in to your very first paranormal investigation? Is this before or after?" Uh,
1: this was uh, let's see this was after
0: okay, so you're already you're a teen or in your early twenties yeah,
1: I was in my um let's see I was out of high i was i was nineteen or twenty great okay and it uh it ha- you know and and I gotta back up for a second because something you said or, or asked me earlier made me sort of think about this. These things, shamanism, you know, the paranormal, these kind of things, they find you. (laughs) You know, they might find you later in life. They might find you when you're a kid. But I I fully believe we're destined to explore these things. It's going to happen. And it's funny because, you know, this path for me, I, I grew up in a rural area of North Carolina. And when I was a kid, I was interested in this stuff. But there wasn't anything. I mean... I can remember getting Chariots of the Gods, you know, Von Donenken's first book, in like a, a, a pharmacy or something, and you know, a drugstore. And, uh, you know, there just weren't many things available back then. And certainly being in a rural area, you know, there wasn't much available for me. We literally lived down a country road. And what happened was, after we had lived there, you know, a couple of years or so, these other people... Came and built a house like two lots over, you know. And it turned out to be this elderly couple. Now I was always, um, I always liked to talk to older people when I was young, and uh, you know, it was just I, I read constantly, so I had, you know, uh, just a different level of vocabulary, you know, for being a kid, and, and started going over and talking to this woman. Well, lo and behold, in the middle of rural North North Carolina. Oh. who moves in a couple of houses over but a woman who was a spiritualist. And she had an interest in all these different paranormal phenomena. <laughs> I started going to her house and talking to her, and I go in one day, and she's sitting there reading Fate magazine. Now, I had never seen this magazine before. You know, back then, it was the little journal.
0: It still is the little and, journal, uh,
1: yeah. She... uh. Yeah, you know, I said, what, what is, you know, what is this? And, you know, she asked me, this has got, you know, UFO stories, it has got stories about Bigfoot, you know, haunts, all this stuff in one little magazine. I was like, oh, my God, yeah, I've never seen this. And, uh, you know, she said, well, you know, yeah, it comes out every month. And, uh, you know, she said something else. She said, okay, well, I, you know, I've got a Coke or whatever. You, know, you make sure you come by tomorrow after school. Mike, I go over there the next day, and she presents me with this huge box. Fate magazine. She says, "I don't need these anymore. So why don't you take them?"
0: The shana- shamanic <laughs> initiation, you know, the step one. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I, 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 you know, oddly enough, I was, I was too sick to go to school for a while after that, and <laughs> just, uh, you know, remember just shuddering up in my room and reading this, I thought, oh, my God, you know, there's this whole world of this stuff and people that are actually investigating it and exploring it. And, you know, I, there's a whole handful of things I've learned about from reading this stuff, you know. I mean, I learned how to do... I learned there were people out there doing uh, recordings to capture EVPs, you know. And back then, they were taking these recorders into to cemeteries and doing recordings and so forth. And uh, so it really kind of... Blue things open for me, and you know, led me to uh, that. That was sort of the doorway for learning a lot more because through that I was able to, you know, wow, I can order all these books, and you know, I just read every single thing I could get a hold of. And I, I think that's something that's sorely missing in modern paranormal investigators. Is they just you mention John Keel or Hans Holzer or you know any of these people, and they don't they have no idea who they are. Um, but they you know they can tell you the every reality star on <laughs> you know ghost hunters and who was on what season and I was like, okay, <laughs> but um, so yeah no ironically, yeah, a few years later in that same area, is where I had this encounter with a sasquatch and in that region of the country, we're talking about the the northeast corner of North Carolina. Right up against the Virginia border, and in Virginia there's a large area that is—it's uh, now a national reserve or something. It's called the Great Dismal Swamp, and that swamp is—it's um, just this massive area. That it's not like a bayou in Louisiana or something. It, it's this area that you could actually walk completely through it if you wanted to. It's just that. Uh, it's sort of, you have to pick your way through, you know, there's areas that are dry and then there's other areas that are just completely, you know, you'd you'd sink down way over your head if you stepped into this, you know, what looks like a little pool of water. So it's a really bizarre place, you know, it's thick with trees and cypress and Spanish moss and everything else. And uh, when I was a teenager, I used to like to go in there a lot and would just, you know, walk way back into that swamp and just kind of explore and be in touch with nature. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, it's it's probably a miracle that I was never, you know, bitten by a copperhead or water moccasin or, you know, there's wild hog back there, there's bobcat, there's all kinds of stuff. And, uh, I had, um, I had trekked back there with these two friends and, uh, Went way back into the swamp, and it, it got late, and we started heading back. But it, uh, you know, the sun sank a lot quicker than than uh, we had planned for. Essentially, so this was in the fall. There was a full moon, so we had moonlight to go by. And uh, I've always had a pretty good sense of direction when I'm out in the wilderness like that. So I was sort of leading the way and picking our way back through the swamp to get out, and got to this one point where I stopped just to sort of get my bearings and I was looking around, you know, at the area and the stuff that was silhouetted and there was this weird clump of what looked like a couple of trees. And I saw it when I was scanning the area and my eyes came back to it because something wasn't quite right, you know. It seemed like there was a, What like a branch from the tree on the right going over to the tree, you know, on on, uh, its side. And I looked at this thing, and I suddenly realized that the tree on the right, you know, only went up like seven feet or something, and then it stopped. And I followed this silhouette down and realized whatever it was, it wasn't the trunk of a tree because it looked like two legs and you know the, the it's one of those moments where the hair kind of goes up on the back of your neck and you just get this feeling and as I'm looking at this thing starting to adjust to what I'm seeing the head of this creature swivel and look directly at me and you know when it did the the moonlight caught its eyes because of the way the moon was shining down and gave this sort of reddish orange eye shine for a moment and what I thought was a branch was actually an arm he had his arm up holding onto a branch on the tree next to him and that arm dropped and he took a stride and turned and walked away from us and uh it was a it was a pretty stunning encounter now the after effects of the encounter were just as fascinating to me because i had been back there with two other people one was a very good friend of mine the other was a pretty good friend you know we'd known each other for a while and what i found was that you know all three of us had seen it the the third guy had just reacted in a, a very a, he, he was he was really scared and could hardly say anything and You know, practically tried to run to get out of the the swamp once we got, you know, within sight of land. And uh, the next day, I was ready to go back out there. I wanted to see if I could find tracks. I wanted to see if I could find anything. And, uh, you know, I talked to my close friend at the time, and I said, you know, I just want you to write down, you know, every detail you can remember from seeing this before we even talk about it. And, you know, we had this whole discussion, well... (laughs) We uh, we kept trying to call this other guy, and uh, whose name was Mike, ironically, and you know we couldn't get a hold of him. And finally, we go over to to Mike's house, and because I really wanted to talk to him about this incident, and we walked in, and we tried to talk to him. He was kind of in a grumpy mood, you know. Brought up this whole thing, you know. I, I said, "Man, I want to talk to you about what we saw in the swamp. I don't know what you're talking about." I said, no, well, you, you remember when we were out? I don't know what you're talking about. And then he just kind of started shouting at us, That he, he wasn't back in the swamp with us. And this whole argument started to heat up to the point that his father came walking out of the other room and said, what are you guys hollering about in here? And, uh, you know, the the whole topic came up, well, you know, so we're trying to talk to Mike about being in the swamp, you know, and... Tuesday night or whatever it was. You know, Mike's like, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't out there with you guys. And his father looks at him and says, son, you, you were. You, you went out trekking back there with these guys. Now, he, he shouted at his father and just stormed out of the room. And, you know, he, he never was able to consciously admit that he was out there with us that night and had had that experience. And, you know, I I honestly don't think, and I I didn't think at the time, that he was lying about it. I I think that it was just so far outside of his uh, accepted paradigms that he couldn't reconcile it um, with what he had seen, with what he had witnessed.
0: Uh, yeah, that's fair. I mean, that almost parrots back to the story of the guy who saw Bigfoot and the UFO and then, you know, wouldn't admit that he was, seemed content to talk about the Bigfoot, but not about the UFO. Right. Uh, yeah. you know, the, 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 and that is one of the things where, uh, you know, I don't know, people talk about like, oh, you can't trust witness testimony because it's all mixed up. And, and, uh, which is true, right? I mean, it's going to be mixed up. There were fragile people were filled with emotions and, um, but, uh, but you know, almost you know, the story gets even that much more important when you add that that ending part to it. You know, the you know, the for all I don't know, like the Bigfoot didn't uh, you know come up to you and reveal the secrets of the universe. But um, you know, the sighting is is one thing, and then the second part of the story, the the very human reaction, is is just as important.
1: Exactly, exactly, and like I said, it was. You know, it's just as fascinating in some ways as the sighting itself. And uh, you know, I, I did <clears throat> I did end up going back out to the location. I went by myself because no one was there with me.
0: Right, the good shaman thing to do. Good for you, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. guess <laughs> it is, you know. And uh you couldn't
1: really find anything, you know, I, I was the area was so muddy and swampy that, you know, there were certainly holes there that sank in and and had filled with water and, you know, you could see where something had uh walked away you know something bipedal had walked away but you couldn't you couldn't distinguish any kind of a track or anything because it was so you know had sank in so far and uh i did spend some time later on talking with people in that area and this is you know the old days of research you know you had to really go and, and network with people and not just walk up to them and say, hey, have you seen any Bigfoot? I mean, you can't even do that today in a lot of cases. You know, you have to, you have to get people comfortable with you before they start revealing some of the older stories. And, and in this case, what I found was in relation to the Dismal Swamp, that there were some stories of creatures back there and the greatest resource to get those stories turned out to be moonshiners because back in those days, a lot of moonshiners in the area would go back and set their stills up in the dismal swamp uh, just because it, it was remote, you know, they knew law enforcement wasn't going to come back there and, man, some of those guys have some weird stories about this, you know, these creatures that are back there and uh, you know, I, I heard stories of them tearing up the moonshiner still and, you know, throwing everything around or Stealing corn, or just all kinds of strange
0: things. Now, um, so here, I think, I, I think I've hit everything on the checklist. We've been going at it for two hours and forty minutes at this point. So, oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, whatever. Like, and I got you to commit, commit your shaman. Yeah, Whitley Strieber didn't even get that out of you. So, <laughs> um, so here, so here, my final question. I'm going to approach. I mean, like, if I had to ask a shaman any question, this would be the question. It's like, what? Is the meaning of all the owls in my life? I see a lot of owls, like like more than other people, and at, at prescient kind of uh, moments. And I don't think they're uh, UFO. Um, sh- what do you call them? Not shadow uh, memories. Um, uh, screen memories. I think these are real owls. And you may right, not so you, you may not right. be able to answer this. i mean, but uh, well, I mean, has a.
1: So so you're saying you do not feel like they're a screen member?
0: No, they are real owls. Right, right. And this is, I mean, I've seen... uh,
1: Owl, when when you look at totem animals, you'll find different, um, slightly different interpretations depending on the cultural background, but you also find some commonalities. Now, the owl, in a lot of mythologies in North America is symbolic of death and all the things associated with that. So, like, you know, the other world, the spirit world. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a very feminine energy in a lot of ways. And it's often associated with people who have, uh, like, psychic or mediumship ability. So, you know, it, it's a... It's a night totem, you know. It's associated with the moon and lunar energy. Um, you know, you can find, and I'm just talking in generalities here, you know. So you you look at uh, more Western culture. Now, what's your cultural heritage?
0: My father uh, is uh, was uh, is Scottish. Both my grandparents came from Scotland. Um, you know, born in Scotland, and the family lineage goes back forever through Scotland, as far as we know. And my mother is Danish, so her lineage, she was born in Denmark, and um, all her ancestry, as far as anyone can figure out, is all Danish.
1: Oh, that's cool. So, you know, here's uh, the owl in shamanic definition is pretty interesting because if you take. Um, trying to think of another example okay so like the the raven or the crow you'll find very similar associations and interpretations in north america and in europe for the raven or the crow the same is true for other animals like you know the deer um but the owl its very curious to me it's, it's very different on the two continents so you know, the things I'm talking about that are associated with it in North America, a bit more ominous. It's, it's often a, an omen. You know, A lot of Native American tribes think it's a, a bad omen. If you see an owl, someone's going to die. Uh, some of the Native mythology you know, talks about, for instance, the, the Southwestern tribes, uh, like the Apache, have a whole owl-man monster that exists in, in their creation myths. But if you go to Europe and you look at the owl... It's it's a bit more noble. It's also often, often associated with the uh, goddess of wisdom, and it's more associated there with uh, this ability to be uh, clairvoyant. And it's often seen as being symbolic of you know being aware of your surroundings. So I would feel like with your background that the owl falls more into that type of a category for you. Now, you know, you can take all these things that I've said about it and sort of sit with it and drive your own interpretation with it, Uh, but I would certainly say that anytime you see one, you really need to pay attention (laughs) on multiple (laughs) levels.
0: Sorry, I didn't mean...
1: attention with what's going on at that moment that you spot it, you know, what's happened that day, but also what's going on in your life at the time.
0: That's funny you said that, because you said pay attention, and I was literally, like, getting ready to reply, and I had written down on the piece of paper, pay attention. Um, <laughs> it, so that's that's what I've come away with. Like, I don't have a good answer. The only answer I have is pay attention. You know, I, I've looked into every, you know, uh, owl totem website, and I've got funny little, uh, you know, totem animal books. And anytime anyone has something on their coffee table that might or might not have something on, you know, on owls, I make sure to read it and, and like... Some of the stuff rings true, some of it doesn't. The only thing I can come away with is just pay attention. And I have had some profound experiences when I think about like what was going on, like at that moment, you know, what was I saying right when the owl appeared? What was I thinking right when the owl appeared? Or the I one time here, I'll give you like this is just one example. I I um was with a friend of mine who's kind of a spiritual guy, and I'd met him once before, and he was actually a client of mine twice. I, I taught uh, for a while at an outfit doing ultralight backpacking. So we were in the mountains of, uh, uh, the Gallatin range, which is just North of Yellowstone. Um, and, uh, we were camped at the spot and we had had dinner and there was kind of a, a muddy area, um, where there was some water, but it wasn't really nice water. Was, you know, was, we were in a place with lots of great, beautiful running streams. And I had been there a few years before, and, and some people were doing the bear hang, and, and me and my friend Peter said, uh, hey, we'll just take uh, the uh, uh, everyone's water bottles, we'll put them in a backpack, and we'll walk down. I, I think I know there's a stream nearby. We'll just go fill up all the water bottles, and we'll be back. So, not, excuse me, not a stream, a spring, so so we walk to the spring, we have a beautiful conversation, we come back, uh, we fill in with full water bottles. So so I'm gonna to add to part of this which which has happened to me before where we're doing an altruistic act. We're doing an act of kindness, or I am doing an act of kindness. And I've had these owls show up in, in association with that. So uh we um get back to camp, we still hear the people they're kind of laughing off in the trees and they're obviously can't get the rope up in the tree to do the bear hang properly and it's, so you know it's sunset and and we do something that I've never done before like so organically is both Peter and I lay on our backs in this small little meadow, so you can just picture this small meadow uh, you know, 20 yards around or so of grass in a, in a circle of trees and uh, we're talking and then I I uh I'm I'm talking actually, and then, then all of a sudden there's a noise up in the trees and five owls fly around. They kind of crash out of the trees, kind of make a loud pronouncement of themselves. They crash I literally I don't know how else to say it, they come crashing out of the trees and fly above us for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, just flying right above us. We're laying in the center of this meadow. They are doing circles, like performing for us, right above us. Five owls. goes on for 15 minutes. They fly away. We're speechless. Like, we both recognize that was weird. That was intense. And I say to my friend, what was I saying when the owls appeared, that moment? And he said, oh, I remember very clearly. You were talking about your mother. And that night, I had a dream of my mom who suffers from Alzheimer's and she was, uh, crying in the dream. That's all I have. I just have a flash of her face crying. And uh, the next day I called her up on the phone. I had a, which I didn't want to do, but we had, we got up on a high ridge. I had cell phone reception. I figured like, I'm going to just call her. This feels important. There was nothing to really to report. She didn't remember anything. I said, Hey, how's everything going? How was last night? And she didn't say anything, which, um, doesn't really surprise me, but, but that was the, uh, the experience connected to that, uh, uh, that, you know, that, that owl thing. So I have had that kind of experience in one form or another, I don't know, you know, many times, you know, 10 times or so.
1: Right. And those kind of things make it very clear that that is, you know, a very defined connected totem for you. And, you know like you've said yourself there's there's dozens of books out there and i often tell people you know you know look at them read the information and then you know put it out of your way because what you're going to find is that you're going to develop your own personal connection with that totem and it's going to convey things to you on a, a level that you understand and no one else does you know it's kind of like dream interpretation it's okay to to read the standard you know you dream about flying it means this. okay well you know on a on sort of a group consciousness level yes it does but there are things beyond that that are resonating on a more personal level and that's what you need to look at and be conscious of in those moments and you know chronicle those things because they're valuable you know, you'll you'll see patterns emerge and you'll see greater levels of understanding develop from those experiences.
0: And when you say chronicle them, that's interesting. You say that because I have been, and it's been in the form of the blog. I really take the blog seriously. Seriously, as a, uh, I just feel like how to say this. Like it's not hidden away in a diary. It's I'm I'm publicly declaring it, and and I think that these experiences it gives them a different. I don't know, heightened, better, worse. I can't, I can't go down that road. But, but it does give them a different resonance, and I find that the f- the fact that I'm blogging about them, you know, one, people contact me and share their all experiences with me, and two, I just, I just, it feels like, uh, like I'm doing, uh, almost like an experiment, you know, like, I, I, like, I have to take this seriously, and I'm, and I'm trying to be as honest as I can be on this blog.
1: You're following the somatic process,
0: which is. Me, is that part of well, it? Is,
1: it's sort of akin to you know the the shaman sitting down and telling the village stories.
0: Yeah. <laughs> huh. Oh, this is fascinating. Hey, um, we have been going at it. It's just a little bit shy of three hours, and uh, this is a, seems like a perfect place to to wind this up. I just have to thank you so much for for. Uh, for sharing all this stuff and for giving an honest answer when I asked, like, "Are you a shaman?" Um, uh, I, Brad Steiger hemmed and hawed and didn't give me the answer that I knew was inside him. So I'm glad you did.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think you know we have responsibility to <laughs> be clear with who we are and, and
0: what we are. So yeah, and and Brad no, Steiger it's also had been a, pleasure a talking to you. great and um and anything you want to say to sum this up. I think we've covered everything. <laughs> so do I, boy. It feels great. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of a. I drank a cup of coffee right at the beginning of this, and I'm a little bit, uh, you know, my head's spinning at this point, so I'm a little bleary headed. We did cover a lot, so.
1: Yeah, we went all over the place.
0: So. Great. I'll put a link to your book. I'll uh, I'll make sure to tell you when it's up. I uh, I take uh, the blogging process pretty seriously, and the website process. I, I I'll try to make sure that uh, um, you get uh, covered, and and I'll put links to any of the stuff that we talked about during this conversation.
1: Yeah, that's great. And you've got the link to my blog and to my uh, to the site to buy my book. So. Oh, yep, yep, the two yeah, crows. No, and I'll, I'll post the stuff on Facebook and let people know what's up and everything so they'll listen.
0: Awesome. That it's been great, and I enjoyed meeting you uh, six months ago. And this has been great reconnecting.
1: Yeah, I'm sure we'll see each other again.
0: Thanks so much. Hi, right, take care, Mike. Bye now. Bye. Hi there. This is Mike. I am chiming in uh, in the summation here. Just uh, I just finished up the editing process. Uh, once again, I have to apologize. I feel that the audio quality was poor, and I I have to guess that that if you listened to the entire show, there were some points where you were struggling to listen to to David's voice. Um, I apologize for that. That was a technical thing that it, it was very difficult to control. It may have been hard to hear his voice. What he was saying was absolutely amazing. There's some powerful stuff in this interview. And and I have to thank um, David for his hard work and also for his honesty. Just that that point where he admitted that he was a shaman, that uh, that kind of took me by surprise, and um, and it added a, a, an entirely new layer to my uh, thoughts about him. You know, I'm 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 much more impressed uh, than I already was. I was actually at a level uh, stepping into this where I really respected the guy, and uh, and that jumped up a whole bunch of notches when he said that he was in fact a shaman. And the one answer that he gave me when I asked about uh, the owls in my life, you know, without skipping a beat, he says, you know, it sounds like a shamanic initiation. And no one has ever given me that answer before. And in a way, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But that's the answer I want. You know, that's what I want to be true. Um, I'll leave it at that. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.